Blank check with Griffin and David. Blank check with Griffin and David. Don't know what to say or to expect. All you need to know is that the name of the show is Blank Check. Sometimes I wonder about my life. I lead a small life. Well, valuable, but small. And sometimes I wonder, do I do it because I like it or because I haven't been brave? So much of what I see reminds me of something I read in a book when, shouldn't it be the other way around? I don't really want an answer. I just want to send this cosmic question out into the podcast. (laughs) So good night, dear podcast. (laughs) It was between that. It felt like for this movie, it feels appropriate to pick one of the email monologues. I mean, you could also do the whole purpose of places like podcasts is for people with no decision making ability (laughs) whatsoever. (laughs) This is the thing. I mean, the quotes page for this movie is very long and I was struggling to find a good one. And and you said you're surprised because this movie does have some good zingers, but I feel like they're longer. This movie doesn't have it's, like something like when Harry met Sally is so snappy. This she film has is no a little podcast. Yes. <laughs> Can I ask a question? Please. This may, this may make me seem like a, an, an uncultured rube when he's the, taking the caviar. Yes. What is that thing? Egg salad. That the caviar is around. Oh, I thought right? it was a goat cheese. It was a big cheese ball. Is it a cheese? It looks it's a so gigantic yellow. gigantic cheese ball. Yeah, that's like covered in like a coating, I think. Oh, I thought it was egg salad when I right, watched it, it last It almost night. looked like egg salad, but then I'm like, why is eggs and caviar seems oh, like... Oh, I would. You know, I, would, I, I would too. It's just sort of a funny combo. I don't know. If I saw a ball of egg salad surrounded by caviar, I would have skipped the caviar and gone right to the egg salad. Right. Meanwhile, here Mr. David Sims is pretending that he's a country rube when in fact he blocked out everything but the caviar. He went so <laughs> caviar crazy the second it was on screen. He couldn't even process what other food was happening. <laughs> Give me that cav. I mean, he couldn't be cavalier the about the The best part about that scene is it's so utterly Nora Ephron to comment on an etiquette issue. Like she yes. is, I'll never forget Nora Ephron being like writing in I don't even remember, maybe heartburn or something else where she was like, you got to buy a round table. That's the, the round table. table. You know, these these advi- these little like advice things that she gives without being condescending somehow right. is yeah. throughout her whole career. She even puts it in a freaking movie that says the caviar is a garnish. You can't eat the caviar like that. It's a garnish. The other thing I noticed last night that I'd never noticed before is when they're talking, she's taking the caviar off his plate and putting it back Onto the plate, which is insane. <laughs> Whenever Nora Ephron puts in like a, a Nora-ism, it reminds me of watching Seinfeld where like they just fully put one of Jerry's stand-up lines in the dialogue <laughs> right, for no right. reason. And yes. you're like, this has no business being in this episode. It's just something that Jerry said on stage once that got a laugh. Like sometimes these like the Starbucks lines are just yeah. things that Nora has said to friends, you know, and she just dropped it in. Right. And in the same way that like Seinfeld had like 15 hours of really strong material that he could pull from across all the seasons of Seinfeld, Nor Efron had an entire life of things like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have so much to say about this, but uh, I was talking to my my sister, who will never be a guest on the podcast again. Um, about the role of food in Nora Ephron movies. And she was pointing this out. And obviously her last movie is her like overt 
food movie. Right, she finally makes the big food movie. Yeah. But there are so many food scenes that are memorable throughout her films, whether they're overtly about food or whether they're just sort of using food to make some sort of point of characterization. Yeah. The apple in Sleepless in Seattle. Right, and even obviously like Katz's Deli in uh, When Harry Met Sally and The Garnish Here, like, and the, the pie in Heartburn. Like mm-hmm. between the film she wrote, the film she directed, the carbonara yeah, in bed. The yeah. Carbonara. Mm-hmm. I would say her thing with like food, but mostly about hospitality, I think yes. is a big Nora Ephron thing. It's like I said etiquette, but I think I just mean hospitality. Like, you know, the way to make people feel the most comfortable in your space uh, is what she's the most concerned with. And it comes up again and again and again. And for some reason, she never ran out of ways to say kind of the same things over and over again, which is like <laughs> the best thing a writer can do. Yeah. And the way that she fits it into a movie like this is really so charming. I mean, you. I just want to say, this is my favorite movie. Like you're not <laughs> catching me saying right. anything bad about this movie. This is this is it for me. You already knew that, but this is it right. for That's me. That's well, why we're yes. having you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and in, and in fact, I mean, A, uh, we, we got some table saying to do here. Uh, speaking of <laughs> etiquette. We got some we got some caviar setting to do here. Right. Because okay? this is this is blank check. This is a podcast about filmographies. Directors of massive success early on in their career are given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion projects they want. And sometimes those checks clear and sometimes they bounce baby. It's a miniseries on the films of Nora Ephron. We've gotten to the titular film, the one that inspired the miniseries title. Because, of course, this is You've Got Podcast. <laughs> We're talking We you've really got put mail. so much thought into that. Yeah, really. I mean, my pitch was You've Podcast. Right. Which I hate. Two separate words. I like that. It only works if you say it that way. Yeah. Right. Right. Otherwise, it sounds like you've podcast. What? What are you? What is that a verb now? Uh huh. <laughs> but our guest today, a, a quick return, a quick return from their last appearance. But it was when we recorded our last episode. They asked, "Who are you doing like for the next two miniseries?" We brought this up, and they said, "Like, oh my god, we have to be on Enora Efron." And we had, in fact, booked someone else to do. You've got mail, but we realized. No, we got to do a swap here. We got to rearrange wow. the table because this movie is so fucking important to the two of you. And we knew that. And then as we started talking about more, we realized even more layers to sort of the history both of you have with this movie collectively and separately. Our guest yeah. returning from the Who Weekly podcast, Bobby Finger and Lindsay Weber. Hey. Yes, the the one of the first projects pre Who Weekly that Bobby and I ever worked on together was an annotated screening of You've Got Mail at the Housing Works bookstore. I don't know how we pulled it off. It had like pop-ups, pop-ups it had raffle, interactive saying, art. it had a raffle with items from Nora. It was right before Nora died and she donated all these amazing items. We both have these signed DVDs that I have gotten framed in my kitchen. It's like <laughs> one of the most important events of my New York City life uh and it made the movie even more like endeared to me personally mm-hmm. i i went to that it was a fully great event uh re-watching the movie last night i i kept on going wait a second how did they pull that off because the last time i'd seen the movie was at that uh wow. that show <laughs> really and i wow. was re- i was remembering eight years well, ago 
Eight years ago. <laughs> eight years ago. Eight years it was ago. Febu- well, it was Valentine's Day-ish, like the day before Valentine's Day, 2012. And Bobby, wow. why do you remember so specifically when that happened? <laughs> because it's the day I met my husband. Fucking um, bombshell. <laughs> Experience share host Josh Fielstad, the best podcast crazy. in the business. We met after a screening of You've Got Mail. That yep. you wow. organized. Wow. Yeah. Which that's yeah. the fact I didn't know until after we had finally made the swap and that's said, let's nutty. get Bobby and Lindsay. The, the fucking You've Got Mail is responsible for your <laughs> marriage, know, it's really Bobby. Stupid. Uh huh. It's like so on the. It's a little too much. I don't even like thinking about it. To be honest, right. it's like it's a little. It's, it's like too, too much. You're like no, no. Come on, <laughs> that's too much. No, it's yeah. so cute, and it's really like I worked with Josh, and I peer pressured him as him long co- as well as my other coworkers, including Lindsay's Tanner, like, co-host of the iconic podcast pod, Pokemon podcast, uh-huh. which and I, I was bullied like, my way onto <laughs> twice, and I will do it again. His favorite show, I was like, David's favorite show in any media. Here you go. You have to come to this. Like, I hope people come to this. Like, it has to be a big thing. Right. And it was like, the two of you and Andrea Rosen. And let me point out that mm-hmm. it was it was such a big thing that I remember I watched the entire movie from a staircase. Like, it was oh, packed. Yeah. Right. That staircase. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was on that spiral staircase. It got. It, it was, was just a, so it, because of the movie. And I think also Andrea's like. Andrea is good <laughs> andrea is good at what she does she's andrea a producer like, she's still a producer and, and so producer, yeah. because it was nora efron it was very easy to get press for this thing and mm-hmm. i think i think it was it even had a little blurb as like something you do in the new yorker like it was in the print issue so like it got the the word got out in ways we never expected because andrea is so good at like getting the word out and talking to people and knowing people. Um, but also we got getting just random, the call for artists that we just knew on Tumblr, donate stuff that we can raffle off. We got the weirdest, coolest stuff. We just reached out to Nora Efron's uh, assistant um, out of the blue and said like, does she want to come talk? That would be great. We Because no one knew she was sick at this point. Right. Um, that's what I was going to say. And I so, remember you making a point of the fact that like she left things downstairs with her doorman, which you yeah. went and picked up, but that you didn't get to meet her and she didn't come to the event. In retrospect, it became clear it was because she was very sick. Yeah. And yeah. Lindsay couldn't. I, I had to go alone and because we all sort of felt like, oh, maybe maybe we'll luck out and she'll be there and right, like hand it right, to us. Right. And no, they handed it, a big regret that I have is I threw away the bag <sighs> that she gave all the stuff in. It was um because she gave us some old tote bags from the shoot. She gave us a lot of DVDs. She gave Lindsay and Andrea and I uh, just DVDs for ourselves. But it was and like a lot, a lot of, of also like like crew hats and like promotional yeah. stuff. Yeah. I, remember. I can't yeah. believe I didn't Totes steal some of that but stuff. The, <laughs> the bag that the that the assistant gave it to me in was for was from an orthopedic shoe store. Right, right. And you made I a joke like, about that. Oh yeah. my god, this is Nora Efron's orthopedic shoe store bag. <laughs> and I threw the bag away when I moved apartments at some point, not thinking. And I, it was it was a yellow it was a yellow bag. Anyway, I'm oh, so sad about that. She, but, but I think the it reason was like, why Nora I got, has your blessing. There was oh, a just email she said specifically said Nora has your blessing. Yeah, knowing that, that was yeah, amazing. knowing that she knew that we were doing it was enough. Knowing that like right, right. she had maybe read about it in the New Yorker or saw yeah. that like that these young people were were doing something silly with it, and 
is all truly all that I I could ask for. But you also honestly. like I mean, you guys are being self-effacing about it and saying it was like a silly thing. And Bobby, you're saying it's so weird that you met your husband there. But it's also like a a bunch of young people, like a generation later, doing a you've got mail screening at a bookstore in order to raise money. <laughs> is something out of a Nora Ephron movie. Like, yes. it is very much the type of event that the couple meets at or yeah. has their second or third <laughs> argument at, you know? You're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that, and Housing Works Bookstore is the most shop-around-the-corner bookstore right. Right. you could get downtown. I mean, yeah. it Anymore is the, the epitome time, yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah, truly. And the two of you wrote, like, you did all these, like, trivia facts and jokes about the movie that were, like, it, part of the video, there were it was literally it was like pop up videos like VH1. Yeah, but there were like graphics popping up. That was the thing while rewatching this last night, where I was like, "Wait a second, how did they actually do that?" Well, Andrea's ex boyfriend Ricky, who uh, is now the host of many videos at AOL Build, you might you definitely guys oh, definitely hilarious. seen this guy. I, I have been great. interviewed by him. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, he, yes. great guy. He volunteered. Well, we pressured him to do all of the graphics work on wow. this thing, well, and I made all the graphics. He okay, put, okay, okay, he okay. overlaid them. Okay, true, okay. true, true. But what's even funnier about this, and maybe <laughs> makes it more special, is that that cut is lost. It's it, gone. He, 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 it was on his hard drive. Some hard, hard drive got gone. messed up. We don't even want to get into it. It's very depressing, but that cut is lost to time. One so like night only one night only yeah, truly one night only for and also, hours and hours of work. We had, we had to cut <laughs> housing Works gave us a hard out. And so we had to cut, I think like 25, there was a very specific number of minutes that we had to cut to the movie to make it fit between the raffle, the opening, the, you know, the goodbye, the leave. It's and a it long just, movie. It yeah. just yeah. so <laughs> happens. We were like, what are we going to cut? This movie is perfect. How are we going to cut anything? And we cut the Dabney Coleman subplot. And it turns out that if you cut the Dabney Coleman subplot entirely and yeah. the father, it, it was the, the precise number of minutes that we needed to lose <laughs> and no one cared. And you there's out, like outside of those scenes, they're yeah. only referenced by characters maybe once. One so time, the enchanting thing. They yeah. never, yeah. and it makes sense. There's maybe one stray reference that Tom makes whenever he's not in a scene that we had to cut. And right. like, no Doesn't one would have noticed it. You no need 20 right. more minutes of Dabney Coleman yes. if you're going to really <laughs> right. like have right. that make sense. Because mm-hmm. anytime that's brought up, you're like, what? The, what's the what's the dynamic here? His dad and grandpa are too horny and evil. Like <laughs> the grandpa went also, on one date with her. <laughs> right. And it doesn't really add to Joe Fox doesn't need the added layer of bachelor. Like we no. don't really need to know his like, Oh, why no. is he like this? It's we like, get we it. get it. We he get has an it. annoying girlfriend. He's right. like a self-involved rich person. Like that's fu- we don't need to know that he has like a bad family life. And that's why he's like this. <laughs> I think it's there to soften him. Right. It's sort of like, I mean, look at his, you know, dad and grandpa. <laughs> yeah. He's a victim of circumstance. <laughs> he's cursed right. with a horny dad and grandpa who gave him millions of dollars and a business <laughs> to run. Um, I also I and think that. It's funny. I didn't even realize you would cut that stuff from it, but it makes sense because I, as I was rewatching, I was like, huh, I don't remember any of this Dabney <laughs> Coleman stuff. In the yeah. movie. Like every I had, time like, I watch it and I've seen it one million times, every time yeah. I watch it, I'm like, oh, right, this. 
And it was sad because Dabney Coleman had died. And I remember being oh, feeling and a like little fairly recently. At that yes. Point, right? And I yeah. felt terrible because Andrea like made a point to say like, Dabney Coleman and right. but we had cut him from the whole movie essentially. And Andrea so. had dated Dabney I, Coleman as well. Yes. And that was another conflict of interest. Right. Yes, yes. They met at Zaybars, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I think you mean that John Randolph would die. Dabney Coleman mm. still oh. alive. Dabney oh Coleman. Oh my god, are you kidding? Dabney, Dabney Coleman lives on. He's 88 wait. years old, baby. Okay. Wait, wow. Okay. Wait I'm misremembering. You can't wait fuck with Buffalo Bill. We're Who recording we this episode in the middle of a national pandemic and a global sure. pandemic. Sure. Who's got eyes on Dabney Coleman? <laughs> can we put him in a panic room? What do we do know. to make sure if he's lived this long, we cannot lose Dabney Coleman. The last time I remember seeing him was remember he was in Boardwalk Empire. He was very old and he played like God. Nucky Thompson's old mentor or whatever and he was like in a wheelchair and he was like Meh. like that's how am i remembering I that dabney coleman died that is like a very I remember weird that too. i had that like, exact same memory around that that's same like a of shazam time. memory that we're sharing or whatever a kazam memory like a right, fake memory a, a berenstein right. bears memory yes yes it did it did ring a bell to me i was like yeah i definitely read a dabney coleman obit yeah and it was I, like you know, buffalo bill <laughs> I do remember it just so being sorry. a real, a real problem because we both, the movie was so precious to us that we were like, we yeah. can't cut anything. Like, we're just like, we're going to have to cancel the event. We can't cut a, a, a fucking frame out of this movie. Right. But then when you watch it, you're like, oh, it's a none of this long. needs to be here. None of this two, needs to be here. Two hours is, is a long running. Like Sleepless in Seattle, which has a more convoluted yes. plot than this, yeah, yeah. is an hour 45. And that's about right. Yes, especially for this movie, especially for the content of this movie. You're right. It should be a it should be sweeter. It should be shorter. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm never having an unpleasant time while I'm watching it, but it does seem like perhaps the Dabney cut or the Dabney list cut <laughs> is stronger. I will say, too, that like in terms of the, the backstory, the character shading, all of that. You get a better sense of the Dabney Coleman and the John Randolph characters just from the scene where. Tom Hanks is explaining the relationship to the two kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then yeah. you do from right. any scene that they're in. Mm -hmm. like, the scenes that they're really in, you're like, oh, yeah. these must be his bosses. Right. <laughs> There's just no family relationship that's really clear. It doesn't matter. Dabney, no. Dabney and John Randolph almost like humanize them a little too much. Uh -huh. right. they, they seem like they seem like nastier people when they're off screen, like especially yes. John Randolph. It's like, oh, what a sweetie. So it just skipped a generation. Dabney Coleman's yeah. the only bad one. Like John, John Randolph is famous for many things, of course. But I've I know course, him as the, as the as the man that Jerry Stiller replaced as Frank Costanza. Right. <laughs> He's in, oh, wow. And, and on the DVD, they have the original cut of the episode so you can see his one performance and you yeah. can so totally weird. see what's wrong with it because he's just playing George's dad as this kind of like old guy who is kind of doddering like it's Wait, he doesn't have an angry take on it the episode yeah. that he's in did they reshoot it with Jerry yeah. Stiller later yes, for syndication yeah. yes. because on Hulu it's the original cut too I watched right. that first episode I, no, I they, did all of Seinfeld recently they reshot it for syndication you can watch on YouTube like side by side wow. like, you know all the actors came back yeah. and everything it's crazy because it is so bizarre. I mean, there's like three castings of Jerry's dad right before they land on the right person. But you can watch those and none of them bump. And to see one performance of Frank Costanza not being Jerry Stiller is right. like very upsetting. Mm -hmm. right. It's very <laughs> yeah. weird. 
He's not good. I mean, no offense to he's him. Not he's not good. good. He's usually good. No he's offense a, he, to him. Plays a, wow. Fuck offense that performance, John Randolph. Offense Wait, to him. one thing that they did cut from this. So there was a longer subplot about a serial killer killing people from right. rooftops. Right, because Steve Zahn holds up the newspaper about it. Right. Right. So there are like dots of references to that, which is so funny to wow. me because they kind of don't make sense. Like yeah. she really should have gotten rid of the whole thing. But I think it was the fear of meeting somebody online. She right. wanted to to the kind of. Right. Yeah. Like right. what if it's the serial killer? Like right. maybe, right. you know, whatever. So like I I love that she had this like catfish thing in there, but then had to cut it. But it still kind of like remains in pieces with Steve Zahn, who does a good yeah. job with what he's given, which is very little. Essentially, yeah. that script is that script is like out there on the like if you want to read the original script, all the rooftop killer stuff is in it. Like that's amazing. It's there. Killer. It's easy to find. <laughs> so she was like, look, I'm going to mash it all up. Barnes and yeah. Noble displacing yeah. West Side Books, The Summer of Sam, The Internet. It's all going in one pot, baby. And, I, you know, and it is like it isn't that much of a loss because like that's, I mean, a plot line that is really of a time and a place in 1998. You don't need it watching the film in 2020 because now no. we know, of course, if a woman meets a man on the Internet, everything is safe. <laughs> And nothing bad could possibly happen. Every man is being honest and fair and right. gentlemanly on the internet, and that behavior will carry into the real world. They they compose whole messages to each other with like periods and commas and yeah. stuff. Such good writers. There is I, I really love that in the in the final version though, the rooftop killer gets like its two references, and the final one is so funny when they when they wonder why he ghosted her on the date. Yeah. And then the cover of right. the New York Post is like they caught the rooftop killer, and they're like, "Well, that explains it." <laughs> they and buy then they're it. done. They're it, done. It's, they buy it. they're like, <laughs> it's so yeah. funny. It was him. Um, <laughs> All right. So I, I gotta say, I watched this. I think I'd only seen the movie twice before. I think I saw it on VHS when it came out, and then I saw the the screening, the Dabney list cut. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> right. Right. So like, uh, yes. This, Right. This was, I mean, a fairly new viewing for me because A, that was almost a decade ago and B, I was watching it without pop-up facts, but with extra uh, Coleman and Randolph. Um, And the previous time I'd watched it before that was VHS uh, full screen. A, it's very bizarre that I didn't see this movie in theaters. Specifically- probably old enough. What have you been, like nine or 10? I was nine or 10, but the the bigger thing was- uh, I, of course, grew up in New York City, uh, downtown Griffey Nooms. So not quite my neighborhood, not quite my tempo, but still the city I love. Uh, my mother at this period in time was like all about protecting small businesses and fighting against chains taking over New uh-huh. York City. That was her entire fucking thing. She was trying to make a documentary about it for years. She, there was this guy, Reverend Billy, who's like a performance artist. Yeah, I think he's no, still I know Reverend Billy. Right, who's like the church of stop shopping. We would go to all of his rallies. Like my mom's entire life that she was bringing my brother and I into was all about like, we have to fight like Banana Republic. And Barnes and Noble was like a big target and protect small bookstores. I don't know why she didn't make us go see this movie in theaters. But I pointedly (laughs) remember I only saw it at home when she rented it on video however many months later. I wonder if it's because she thought it was going to be flippant about that subject but i remember watching it with her and both of us being impressed with like how sad the movie is in that Mm -hmm. aspect yeah well it definitely it doesn't give up but it doesn't solve her business problem (laughs) like her store closes that's why the movie works i think 
if she defeated him, it'd right. be like, oh, fuck this. Yeah. Like, you know, this is stupid. But it's also, I mean, yeah. it's treated with a lot of weight. Like, it's not just like, well, this is sort of the thing you need to do to set up the movie. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the movie has a, a very similar approach to sort of the vanishing New York that my mother did well, at the time. Context. Come context. on. Well, that's it's what I was going to say. So I was watching the, the Blu-ray of this movie, which is weirdly fucking packed. Uh, including all of Shop Around the Corner on mm-hmm. a second disc, which I watched for this. Uh, awesome. And this amazing featurette where they're like Nora clips of her talking about the different locations they shot in and why they shot there. That's so cool. And like a bunch of featurettes and stuff. So I went deep watching everything on the disc last night. It seems like the origin of this movie was... I the know what the origin of this movie was. I Hello, was going to say Excuse me. Yeah, but I'm from the Upper West Side. It's Uptown Davy New- <gasps> Sims' time to shine. We all know that. You're from the Upper West Side. It's the only place you've ever lived. We all know that. You're Uptown right. Davy Sims. So I grew up <laughs> on 89th and Amsterdam. Of course. And, and you lived there. Yes. Wow. Until 1995. Forever. Wow, this rivalry. Um, this I didn't know there was like a, a war between Uptown and Downtown. downtown. <laughs> Well, it's a basic fact that he lived on the Upper West Side and continued to do so. So in 1998, he probably saw this movie and I don't know, 84th, the 84th Street AMC. I mean, then a Lowe's, right? You must have seen it it there. It it, it was a Lowe's back then. But no, I saw this movie on a plane, actually. I remember that very clearly. (laughs) Um, But I lived in Britain. I lived in Britain by the time this movie came out. Is this Uh, You lived in Britain. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, yeah, right. Right. I've heard that. (laughs) See, they know. Griffin, well, see, they know. I and I realized that. that once again for the eighth episode in a row, I have forgot the uh, bit. I fucked up the bit that we were trying to do, which is I am confident in the fact that he lived in England and right. him being from the Upper West Side surprises it's me. Surprise. That's what the bit's but, supposed to be. And I fucked it up. And here's a peek behind the curtain. And we're keeping it in. We're doubling it. <laughs> It actually um, did surprise me because I thought I did think you were actually from England only. I didn't know you had this other place you were also from. But and that's no, why the bit would be funny purpose. if I had remembered it. <laughs> Uh, cool. I did grow up. I lived on the Upper West Side till I was nine. I lived on 89th what? Amsterdam. Yeah, all right. And and there was, when I was a kid, this big controversy when the Big Barnes and Noble, which is it still there? I believe it's still there yeah, on I Broadway so. and 83rd. Yeah. Moved in, which is like basically a full city block, you know, this mm-hmm. giant fucking superstore. Uh, and it killed a lot of businesses, including West Side Books, which was like the nice neighborhood bookstore right around there. And so obviously, I mean, this is just, she's completely doing that. Like it is, mm-hmm. it's in the Upper West Side. This is her Upper West Side movie. Like yes. mm-hmm. Harry Met Sally has some Upper West Side content, but it's kind of all over no. the city. You know, yeah. some of it's downtown, some of it's the village. It's, you know, Katz's, the Met, right? But like, this is that, this movie has that feeling of the Upper West Side in the 90s where it's like, we don't need to leave these 40 blocks. Like mm-hmm. everything I need is covered from like 59th to 110th. Like, you go to Zabar's, you go to Fairway, you go to the park. Like, that's all you got to do. Like, you know, you've got your culture down in Lincoln Center. <laughs> like that weird hermetic feeling of that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And that's why everyone was so horrified by that Barnes & Noble, which, if you've been there, is colossal. And when I was a kid, was a total paradise because you could just run around. Like, for kids, it was unfortunately right. exactly what Fo- Joe Fox is promising. Well, that's like, what I was going to say. That's what Joe bags, Fox says. Big chairs. Like, now I'm nostalgic for that fucking place. Of like, course, that, that place is going to go soon. 
Chris yeah. Messina not knowing about the shoe books. Uh, yeah. Messina, Sarah <laughs> there, Ramirez. There's so many people in this movie. Everyone in this fucking movie. I mean, I said this to you last night, David. I was texting you and I was like, every single person in this cast is a ringer. And yes. some of them are just like, oh, this person's a little overqualified to be doing this role at this time. And some of them are like, she fucking picked Chris Messina 10 years in advance. Right. The casting on this movie is flawless. Everyone yes. is perfect. Everyone is even people who aren't people that are, are picked so smart. Like, right. It's everyone, everyone is perfect. Everyone Deborah is rush perfect. in the elevator. It's perfect. Oh, yeah. yes. Oh my God. Katie, Katie Finneran as the uh, the nanny. Oh, yeah. Um, who plays the woman who who comes into the store, the author who ditches them to do the book signing at, at Fox Books? She's incredible. Who was the Seinfeld laugher? Oh, what? She she is great. She's that. She's the she's the woman who laughs too much at Seinfeld. Wow. <laughs> at, during his bit. Yes, I forgot that. Jeez. I forget uh, who she I is, think, but she's great. Her name is Vianne Cox. I believe. There we go. Name, yes. Thank you. Something that the movie is really smart about. Or maybe it's not smart. Maybe uh, this is a stupid compliment. But I like the fact that it's you have the way you it very clearly communicates the importance of this like small town thing and like how how awful it was when these big box stores came and destroyed the neighborhood in a way. Mm -hmm. It's smart enough to recognize Meg Ryan's like privilege and yes. her like sort of yeah. inherited wealth because you yes. have there's never a moment where the movie wants you to think that she's going to become destitute after this happens right. and if anything right. she's her going apartment? to become even more wealthy because she's going to get this job as like a children's book editor yes so like yes the movie yes. is very the movie never makes you sympathize with her in that level it's very much about the death of a community not like the death of this woman's income and i think it could have gone that way and you would have been like shut up we always kind of mock the Meg Ryan character because what I love about her is that she's so specifically not perfect. She's like yes. out here being like me and my mother twirling and daisies <laughs> are my favorite flower. Like she is not she really is out of touch. So part yes. of you kind of does look at Joe Fox and say, like, I know we're supposed to think you're bad, but also like you're doing what you're, you know, like you, it's not this easy split. Like she dates the worst guy, right? Like she is dating Frank Navasky, who's based on a real person. And it's like, you can, everyone is groaning at this guy, even though his intentions are supposed to be in the movie. Good. He's like trying to right. do all these things, but he's so up his own ass that right. you're like, if she's dating this idiot, like she is, she's so far from perfect. You know, it's, it's one of those, like it, it, the movie's very well, balanced in that sense that it finds a way to make the characters that seem unsympathetic sympathetic and it mm -hmm. finds a way to make the characters that are naturally sympathetic a little bit unlikable <laughs> yes exactly oh it's so good frank is i think frank digiacomo right the guy who used to run yeah. the transom at the observer i mean when yes. i was a kid i watched this movie and i was like that's what my ceiling is i'm gonna maybe get to write for the observer <laughs> and be kind of a you know pain in the neck Ugh. who's a little self-satisfied you'll like, be that that's, nut at the observer yeah. when he's at the party and he and the, and parker posey says she's read his piece and he goes wait uh you read it i just i really didn't expect people for you put stuff out there and you you don't know if people read it i was like this is my life this is twitter i <laughs> which is also can't. which is a sign which is a scene that's ultimately like lifted from when harry met sally like yeah, yeah. the shock at being read <laughs> The partner yeah. swap. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Kinnear in this, I feel like at the time, 
He's in this movie. He's in a couple others around. This is post as good as it uh-huh. gets, right? Griffin is post his Oscar nom. Right. And most of his other roles after this, around this time, are. He's the third guy who gets dumped or whatever, or the <laughs> yeah. villain or whatever, <laughs> yeah. right? Like he's the Baxter. Yeah. Right? Right. Then the next year is Mystery Men, where he's like the Baxter of superheroes. <laughs> right. 100%. And like. He's not quite playing the Bill Pullman role in this. You know what I mean? Like, it's a different vibe. Well, can I throw out some context? Yes. Because it's interesting, David. Uh, you uh, were so fast to trump me with explaining the context of where this movie came from. But somehow you didn't cover the things that I was going to say. <laughs> well, I just wanted to talk about the Barnes & Noble. Well, great work. Congratulations. Ten profundity <laughs> points. Uh <laughs> It's Delia and Nora Ephron go see As Good As It Gets. And they go, fuck, that guy would be good for that part. But he's clearly about to blow up. Mm. I mean, he was clearly like getting the best reviews, was going to get an Oscar nomination. Do you think there's any way he would take this role? They offer it to Kinnear and Kinnear says, I'd love to do it. But as it kind of feels like the ending was supposed to be Meg Ryan dumps him after the argument at the movie theater. That sure. was supposed to be the ending of it. And he said, I feel like I've seen that in so many movies. This thing where like the guy reveals himself to be a little bit too much of a pill. There's some brutal breakup. You know, it, what is the more traditional like Bull Pelman kind of role? Right. He's a drip or he's an asshole or whatever it is. And he was like, can we do something a little more modern? It's entirely a Greg Kinnear pitch the, the scene where they scene? both, yep. I love oh, I that. I had no idea. That's Kinnear. Kinnear said, I'll do the movie if this is how my character line ends. I love right. that scene too. Yeah, it's a good scene. You wouldn't even think to write that. It no. almost feels unfinished, but then when you watch it, you're like, oh, this is a gr- this is great. Absolutely. <laughs> Isn't that incredible though? That like Ephron was like, oh, you're right. That's better. And it feels like such an Efron scene, but that was Greg Kinnear being like, these are the terms of me taking the part. I'll do it if you do this. Right. There's also just no guilt. Like in the beginning when they're both kind of hiding their computer activity, you're like, well, nothing has really happened yet. Is this emotional cheating? Uh, we're right. bordering, right. but like not quite, not quite. Mm-hmm. So you don't you don't you don't really get them cast in that like cheater realm. Yeah. You kind of just because you have these girlfriend boyfriends who are so kind of annoying and you know they're not right and you know they're all kind of yeah. like about to break up in a weird way. There's it's like kind of a magical thing that Nora and Delia are able to do by making it making you not hate them for kind of being a little shady with their yeah. with their partners. Well, even the scene when they're watching the Jane Adams show. Yeah. And, <laughs> He's flirting and with Meg, her. And Meg Ryan is like very like openly recognizing that he is flirting with her and that she's flirting back. You can sense this like relief. In her, she's like, mm-hmm. okay, I'm not the only one. Like, mm-hmm. we're both doing this. Like, right. <laughs> it's it somehow manages to be cute. So much of this movie she, is like towing the line between like, these people are fucked up yes. and these people are really, really sweet. So, And and she is so fully anticipating the reveal that he's with Jane Adams. And when mm-hmm. he's like, no, 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 no. But do you think? Yeah. She's so on board to give him <laughs> advice and be like, no, it seems like the two of you would fit well together. <laughs> I think my also one of my favorite lines which uh, well, uh, well, maybe one of my favorite line Nora Ephron lines ever is, is uh, yours is the only show I do watch, which <laughs> yeah. has so much to do with Greg's delivery, but oh, still totally. yours is the only this show is, I do. Is watch. this the thank your, they do that. Thank mm-hmm. your, <laughs> okay. thank your, thank, thank your, your, ladies uh, and gentlemen. thank your, thank your. 
for a little more context, as often seems to be the case in Nora Ephron's career, despite the fact that she was already very well established before she starts directing movies and had numerous hits, most of her movies seem to come out of another rare, powerful woman in Hollywood at that point in time setting the movie up. So, like, so much of her career is, like, Amy Pascal and Linda Obst, and this yeah. one is Lauren Schuller Donner. Mm-hmm. It's, like, these female producers or executives who had risen uh, in a time that was not very hospitable to women in the industry. Unlike now, where the internet is safe for all women, and women are all ruling Hollywood, and it's great, and girl boss, hashtag yay. But um, everything's perfect. Uh, we fix the world. Um, <laughs> Lauren Schuller Donner... <laughs> Who mostly, I mean, obviously is uh, Best known married as to Richard a superhero Donner. person. Right. Yes. And mm-hmm. even if you look at her career prior to like X-Men and everything, it's mostly pretty masculine films. She did a lot of, um, well, Richard Donner movies, right? So yeah. like uh, uh, that. But uh, Free Willy. Free Willy. She did Dave. Oh, I love Dave. But I'm also looking here like Assassins, Assassins Lethal Weapon yeah. movies, Any yeah. Given Sunday uh, um, I mean, yes. It, it, after this, she starts to make some more female-driven films, but then she also just makes a lot of X-Men movies. She gets sort of tied into the X-Men thing. Yeah. Totally. But this is, uh, I, I think, Warner Brothers reaches out to her. They've merged with Turner, so they've just inherited a lot of the Turner library, which includes so many classics. Um, and... Warner Brothers is now, with all these new films they've acquired, aggressively trying to figure out which ones would make good remakes. So So Lauren Schuller Donner looks at the library and goes, huh, shop around the corner. That's a, I mean, that thing has legs. It's been already remade once. It was a musical. Like, that seems like something. based on something. Yeah, right. Right. There's so many versions of it. Yeah. Right. So then she said, that seems like a good Nora Ephron project. Reaches out to Nora Ephron. Nora Ephron goes, oh, Delia and I, that's one of our favorite movies ever and one of our favorite musicals ever. And the two of them go, let's take this thing, which obviously is sort of just like potent and primal enough that it's worked already in a couple different forms and figure out how to put as much of our own interest <laughs> into it as possible. All the Upper West Side stuff. It's exactly what you said, Bobby, which is their big thesis for this movie. The thing they said that they wanted to do was uh, New York is so often, even in movies where New York is a character, as we know, New York is often above the title and it's almost like a character in the movie itself. Mm-hmm. But it's often treated as this very overwhelming, kind of hostile, massive thing. And they wanted to make the movie about how New York City is a series of small towns, that any sort of like six block neighborhood in New York City does feel like a small town where you have your local places and the people know you and all of that sort of stuff. So that was one of the things they were bringing to it that they thought they could update the film with in a modern way. And then the other thing was the the book angle, like that the two of them specifically love children's books, that Delia had written a bunch of children's books at this time, that they were like the the loss of city books was like fresh to them. And every previous version of this story, uh, She Loves Me, Shop Around the Corner, and uh, In the Summertime, um, they're co-workers. Like, the other three versions are centered around they work at the same store and they hate each other. And as opposed to what you're saying, Bobby, where if the shop closes, Meg Ryan is not going to be destitute in this movie. In the other versions, it's very much this is in an economic crisis if people lose their jobs, they might become homeless. So, okay. so much of yeah. the rivalry between the two characters is they're fighting for who becomes the most valuable employee of this store because if one of them nudges out the other, their entire life might be ruined. And 
she brings to it the whole element of oh it's it's rivals in different mm. companies within the same business which mm-hmm. is almost a little bit of an Anochka. I mean she's pulling from like a different Lubitsch movie which is here are two people who are opposite sides of the coin don't realize they get along that well and then the sort of secret correspondence element which only makes more sense in an email age than it did in a letter age oh yeah which is crazy to me it's still crazy to me that Delia and Nora, who were born in the 40s, and they're my parents. Yeah, yeah. How did these two women write an internet movie? I, yeah. to this day, do not understand. <laughs> it is still, to this day, difficult to write movies about people on the internet, people texting, people doing anything with computers. How do you get somebody to be interesting behind a computer. That to me is insane that they figured it out. How did they do it? I still don't do not know. And the other what's so amazing about it is maybe the reason why this movie is so good is because of how little they really know about the intricacies of online communication. Mm -hmm. They're just like, let's just say it's letter writing. And when the IM pops up, that's as far as we're getting into this computer. Which is why it doesn't feel dated. Even to yes. this day, because all they're really doing is emailing and we still email. So right. they never get into the weeds of what like we don't see that. Like if we had seen the AOL interface a lot or if we had seen how the Internet actually worked, then we would have been a little like, oh, wow, this didn't age well. Right. But all you see is the email box, really. And, and like they don't said, have the phones that they don't have phones where the emails pop up. I, the right. one A great part is when uh, he he ghosts her. Uh, she uh, He goes her and she's walking home and she doesn't have any access to even say, where are you? Or you didn't come or did she has to go home, open the computer, check the mail. <laughs> Shut Log the computer on. like that to me, you that's just it's so lucky almost that it was this time that they chose to do this Absolutely. because mm-hmm. it would not work outside of that context. Well, and even like, just this yeah. title. I mean, do you remember this movie, like seeing the trailer and going, fuck, that's a slam dunk title. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, what a good idea. Yeah. And two years later, the title wouldn't work. Like mm. two years later, it was overplayed. And three years after that, AOL was sort of bombing. Yeah. And that AOL let them use it free. Yeah. I mean, obviously, why would they not? But they right. let them use it and and that it became such a catchphrase and it still has meaning nostalgically to us as yes. like a generation. Right. It's <laughs> Such so a perfect strange. snapshot. I mean, it's also there's this long feature on the Blu-ray that I think is from ported over from the 10th anniversary DVD. So it's Hanks and Efron and Ryan sitting in a very nice living room on white couches, <laughs> um, drinking coffee like in 2008. And then they cut in talking head interviews with Delia and Lauren Schuler Donner. And they're talking about how the movie got made. And they're all sort of saying like. 10 years out how surprising it is that the internet has grown into what it has but also that the film doesn't feel like a relic like it has aged mm-hmm. so much better than a movie like The Net which is so explicitly about like we understand the internet mm-hmm. and everything in that movie feels yeah. so fucking dumb now and this movie <laughs> it, it was surprising for someone who doesn't seem very like computer literate even sitting on that couch 10 years later Nora's like understanding of the the sociological impact of the internet was so on point. And I think it circles yeah. back to the food thing. It's like her movies up until Julie and Julia are not explicitly food movies, even though she is known for being such a foodie in her real life. But the thing she really understands that she put into all of her films 
is the the sociological power that food has. You know, what what it means yeah. to have a meal with somebody or to have someone make a meal for you or where you're eating it or what you're eating or or these sort of, as we were saying, like the social decorum around food. Yeah. And I mm-hmm. think she just was one of those people who understood those things so well that even in 1998 or even in 1996 when she's writing the script or whatever, she understood how the internet was going to change human interaction. Well, she also never forget one of my favorite Nora Ephron things is kind of later in her life. She started a HuffPo blog about divorce. I mean, she to even to even know how to start a blog. Like, I know that she obviously had help. She was friends with Ariana Huffington, I'm sure. And like Ariana was like, Nora, we got to get you back on the Internet or on the Internet. A lot of writers at her level would have really looked down on the fact that they would be able to blog her. And she embraced it. And Alec Baldwin were the two people blogging. When mm-hmm. I worked at AOL, it was like those two people like it was and it was shocking that even they were doing it. But Nora always got how important. I mean, even just making Julie and Julia into a movie yeah. from start to finish, like right. how cool blogs were and how important they were and how to translate the idea of a personal web blog into narrative or whatever. It, is, it, was it is particularly fascinating that Alec Baldwin was blogging because that was after he had said goodbye to public life. He, he had fully he had retired <laughs> from public life and then we never saw him again yeah we still haven't seen him since it's actually I, I wild. wish he could pop up and tell us he's okay and then punch someone in the face <laughs> oh my god let him play Ooh, his words uh, with friends griffin <laughs> yeah he's busy fighting for a parking spot or whatever he was he has last to. time he got yeah. i gotta say i heard a story that alec baldwin and his 17 children with hilaria were applying to move into a different uh co-op because uh, they needed more space uh, with their. Did they already combine like eight apartments? Yeah, yeah. I wasn't going to say that, but I think that this was when they were looking for the apartment before that. Yeah, yeah. They bought a friend of ours a childhood apartment and combined it with the floor below it <laughs> or above it. I forget the details. Really? But was yes. it the building they were already living in? No, I think they bought. I don't okay. think they were already living in it. I think yeah. they bought it and the one next door to it. And so he's like, every time Alec Baldwin posts a photo of him, like with his young children, he's like, that's my childhood bedroom. It's very weird. (laughs) The gossip I had heard was that around that time when they were looking for the new apartment or apartments, they kept on getting rejected by different co-op boards because they'd be like, we don't want him fucking punching a guy in the paparazzi's (laughs) taking pictures right outside our door. Like every time he has an altercation like that, it's outside his front door of his building. And all these buildings were like, we don't want to get dragged into that shit. Well, or it's on a plane because he wants to play words with friends. Let's be clear. David, you are muted. Oh, what the fuck? No, something's going (laughs) on David's muted. My headphones have been acting weird. David's quite muted. Buster Keaton uh, Rufsine right now. He is talking very <laughs> empathetically with his hands. We can't hear what he's saying. You're fully muted, David. I'm not. My headphones there you are. Now. Can you hear me now? Oh, you're back. Oh, you're back. You. You're Zoom had to restart my audio. Oh. Okay. Also, not to be depressing my about it, but weird. I'm wondering did when you guys were watching this, right? Let's put into context right now. I've mm-hmm. never been more depressed <laughs> than <Yes>. I. <laughs> never, truly never been more depressed. <laughs> you mean about what the movie is saying? No, about New York City, about looking yes, at New York City yes. in an like ideal way City, right now. <laughs> New York City in the fall, like everything mm. they say about New York City in the fall is it cuts even deeper than it ever has. Yes. Now, yes. they CGI'd those falling leaves. Did you know that, Bobby? Wow. No, I didn't know that. If you can listen to the commentary with which is Nora and Lauren Schuler Donner, mm-hmm. 
the greatest double act in in I have the Blu-ray Griffin's been talking about, but I have not listened to the commentary. Yeah, Bobby, we got to listen to this commentary. They're like, all of the fall stuff is CGI, baby. We were shooting this in the summer or whatever. You know, it's it's all like there's a lot of holidays like that. Look, yeah, we're it's May 2020. This is a time of great political turmoil. I really don't want to get canceled. Okay, in a moment of great sensitivity, I really don't want to get canceled. But I texted David this last night and I feel strong enough in my convictions here that I feel like I need to repeat it on mic. Go ahead. Consequences be damned. I heart and why. <laughs> you apple it? You I could apple say. it. I was watching this movie last night and Lindsay, just like you were saying, and this has been a running thing in all these Nora Ephron episodes, all of <laughs> which we've been re- rec- recording in quarantine. I almost cry or cry in any one of these movies with the way she photographs New York City, yeah. feeling a loss for a city that I currently still live in. And it's not just the vanishing New York element of, oh, a lot of these businesses are gone from 20 years ago. It's literally just seeing people walk around the city I love without masks on. The opening of this movie is like beautiful. It's like everything I love about living here is walking around, holding a coffee uh, and just looking around. It's so funny. You're forgetting that, of course, the actual opening of this movie, Bobby, is a pixelated Warner Brothers (laughs) look. Zoom into the earth. Yes. uh, Please don't forget that. Which is great. But the to moment be clear. the moment the cranberries start, yes, that's yeah, that's baby. it. That's it. And and there there is. We haven't um, even but, gotten into the soundtrack. We haven't even gotten to the soundtrack uh, of this iconic film. But Nora Nora gives you a pass. Yes, for feeling as feeling the sappy sentimental feelings that you sometimes feel about this place, and it makes you recognize that like it's okay to think those things because like look around you. This is a perfectly acceptable feeling. This place yes. rules. Yes. Yes, like, this rules. Absolutely. This is a movie about uh, the New York, the Upper West Side, the Manhattan, whatever, that she loves passing into memory. Mm-hmm. Like, even though she's making it just as it's happening, she knows what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ooh, I'm getting a phone yeah. call. One second. Oh, my God. Jesus Christ. Hollywood Sims over here. <laughs> when What's-Her-Face complains about having to maybe move to Brooklyn and then yes. Steve Zahn says that he has a six-bedroom for four fifty a month, I was like, I yeah, what New York is this? Yeah. <laughs> so much yes. fucking shit going on. Jesus. Uh, she is great. What is her name? Heather, Heather Donahue. Burns. Heather, Heather, Burns. Heather Burns. I know her She's best from uh, Bored to Death. Yes. Remember she was in Bored to Death? I know her best from Miss Congeniality. Right, and she's Congeniality. in so many um, Sandra Bullock right. movies. Right. She yes, became like a weird Sandra Bullock good luck charm because she's in like two weeks notice as well, I think. Oh, yeah. yeah, she is. Yeah, yeah. You know who's also so good that we have say. I know you're going to say. Oh, Dave I thought Chappelle? you were going to say Gene Stapleton, okay. but yeah. Both. No. <laughs> both. Well, they're both. Would, you, would we say equal? They're both giving equal. I uh, just, because. Um, well, because performances. Identical. Well, because um, Lady Gaga's iconic album Chromatica came out last night, mm. we did a listening party for our fans and we were um, listening to Gaga, A Star is Born. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about A Star is Born and I and then I saw was watching this and I was thinking Dave Chappelle looks so good in A Star is Born. Just yeah. incredible. What this a great scenes. actor. And this was his first one of his early movies, yeah. I would say, for sure. I think this and Half Baked are the same year, maybe. Okay. He's so natural. Like, yeah. I don't, they kind of put him in a weird place as a character. Like, he doesn't, 
he's not quite fl- flushed out, but like he still is so able so to good. say things like call her hot many times, call her, say that she's not a dog so many times. And somehow it's like, it's weird, but it's not the worst. <laughs> no, no. And I think like, look, this is an ultimate example of that thing I'm kind of obsessed with that I always bring up on this podcast where big A-list movie star casts an up-and-coming actor 20 years younger than them to play their best friend to make them seem a little more modern and current. Yeah. Yes, yes, Um, yes. And very often, very often, it is a person of color to make the the white A-list star feel a little more hip as well. Mm -hmm. Totally. Uh, They're used for that sort of like modern cachet. Uh, right. But, but he is so good in this that somehow you actually kind of buy that they're friends. And like, well, you and also kind of buy that Tom Hanks's character doesn't really have a lot of that, close friends. That, and like, so, his only close friend so is his assistant. And his his yes. like, friend is this guy yeah, who's doing the construction. That's why it works. Right. So it's almost like it's not crazy that he'd be like yes. working out with him at Equinox or wherever they not Equinox, but like pre Equinox, yeah. whatever, watching the TV or something like it's not yeah. that crazy. But I did like watching this made me wish and I understand a thousand the bigger, crazier things happen in his career and he, you know, adjusted accordingly. But I wish he were in more movies, even if it was just a role like this or a role like Star is Born. He is such a good actor and yeah. like he talks about i think in his inside the actor studio how he didn't just want to be a stand-up who would then appear in movies and just sort of be doing his routine how he was like taking acting classes when he was 18 years old because he recognized that the stand-ups were best in movies had an acting background weren't mm-hmm. just i'm funny on stage i'll know how to do this and dave Chappelle has genuine chemistry friend chemistry with tom hanks here it's not just that he's funny. I mean, he is a really fucking skilled actor. And a part that's not actually demanding that much of him. I also get a sense that Tom Hanks is very good at creating friend chemistry yes. with almost any person he's ever I worked with on film. I think that's definitely part of it. I do yeah. think being opposite Tom Hanks is about the best. It's quite like, easy, I feel get. like. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's believable that both... Tom and Meg Ryan wouldn't really have that many friends. Like yes. Meg has her, Meg has her boyfriend, and she has her. She mom's has her coworkers. Best <laughs> right, she right. has her coworkers and Birdie. She and has inherited it. her mom's best yeah. friend along with her mom's business. She has nothing that's that it. she made on her own. Yes, mm-hmm. that's what this movie is kind of quietly about, right? It's like even though her life is so cute and yeah. she's got this great place, it's not hers. And like, no, it's not. Yeah, hers. it's like she is kind of living this sort of. It's like who is this person? Like yeah. even her apartment, she probably inherited. Yeah. When she says, no, maybe nobody will remember me, but people remember my mom and they loved her. Yes. Like that is the bleakest sentiment. Yes. Oh my fucking God. This is my whole take. I was saying this to Griffin last night because yeah. we have been talking about going through this miniseries. It's like the big Nora hits are the movies that people think of as more like these sort of like lovely, slightly sappy kind of like, you know. You know, Sleepless in Seattle, you've got male, Julie and Julia, right? Like, True you know, that's, love, the uh, right people ultimately find each other. What people think of as the Nora Ephron movies when they talk and the about ones Nora that Ephron movies. bomb are the ones where she tries to go kind of acidic and like mix nuts, lucky mix numbers, nuts. Oh. which, you know. The oh, ones that are closer to her writing as a humorist. I mean, the stuff that she yeah. made her bones, right. 
this right. is kind of, I think, the salty sweet movie. You just have to sort of be aware that these characters are all a little sad and like yes. that the ending is nice. Sure, they get together. I, you know, I hoped it would be you, you know, but, but like, uh, like, you know, I don't know that it just feels like something sort of dying in this movie. And there's right? a there's a harder edge to their fighting than I remembered there being. It's not he's like a jerk. Cute. He's an asshole. Right. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. He's a total asshole. When he humiliates her, like when he goes into the cafe oh, and she's awful. waiting and she oh. just he just rips into her like yeah. that is probably that's the, the cruelest thing you could do to somebody. Yes. I could th- like that's unforgivable in a way, you know, it's why the ending is I mean, yeah, the ending is, you know, you got your your beautiful summer of the rainbow cover mm-hmm. happening, but right. she like breaks down into tears because she's like, Oh my God, you were so mean to me. And I knew I wanted it to be you. I wanted it to be you so badly, but you were such an at like, it's sad. She's remembering all of these things. Like she's, it's like, it put a magnifying glass over like the sadness of her life. Yes. And she's like, I mean, thank God I have this happy ending, but Oh my God, what a terrible trajectory. There's a, there's a version where she's like, "Whoa, Whoa, 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 wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. So you stood me up and then came and visited me to torment me? Like, can we just, I'm sorry, can we go through a couple of events before we kiss? Right, she's crying not because it's him, but because she wanted it to be him. There's yeah. something so right. destructive like, oh, so sad. about them being attracted yeah. to each other. Yeah. And think about the the kind of the the through line about niceness and mm. meanness. It's like he's too mean, she's too nice. Like he's teaching her to be mean and she's teaching him to be nice and like that's right. like how do we meet in the middle? But ultimately when they're both mean, it's like it's not actually that cute. Like no. no one is really doing meanness in like the way that they think they're doing meanness, I think. Like her her snap her clapbacks or like even worse than his original meanness in a way. Like I don't know, especially because of the types of people they are, which is kind of both a little. Like, do you lonely think Hanks and- wanted to be like you know like in Sleepless in Seattle? I'm such a saint. Like I want to play this as a little more of a jerk. Like you know, yeah. what's my read on this guy. I hope I I think so or because I think he has to. Yeah. His hurdle to being mean is big. He has to mm-hmm. really big. try <laughs> to be mean. <laughs> That 10 years later retrospective thing, they talk a lot about the the Cafe Lalo scene, Ugh. which there are pretty much only three scenes in this movie because it really uses Shop Around the Corner and the play that was based on and the two later versions, the musical and the, and the movie musical. It pretty much just uses that as a springboard. It takes a lot of, you know, new directions from it. But there's three scenes that exist almost verbatim in all three movie versions which are the scene with the friend, the Dave Chappelle scene where he takes a look at her and like down to specific wordings, she almost has the same coloring as that line exists in all three movies. Wow. Just which is, which change. is such a weird line in context yes. when you hear it for Dave Chappelle to totally. say, which that's where I start to go like, man, Chappelle's fucking good in this movie because I have <laughs> the fact watched- that he can pull off saying she has the same coloring as, as that woman, Kathleen Kelly. Like, well, that is not how Dave, that's not how a person would say she looks like Kathleen Kelly. And if you look up the actor who played the best friend role in Shop Around the Corner, it's like an older Eastern European man with a mustache mm-hmm. who's from Ninochka. <laughs> and that line sounds normal coming out of him. And recognizing, having seen them in such close succession, like, oh, my God, Chappelle's about to do this word for word almost 
as if it were from the original script. How was he going to pull this off as an actor? Pulls it off. That seems almost identical. And she said she picked Cafe Lalo because in the other versions of it, it's that thing where even in the original, it's like the cafe is elevated. So the friend is able to walk up the stairs and the guy in the street level isn't able to see it. And the cafe scene itself is very similar without being word for word. It's B for B, very similar. And then the scene where he visits her when she's sick is very, very similar, beat for beat. Which is truly one of our favorites to rag on. That's Meg balling out. (laughs) Fully off the... It is off the rails. I'm sick. Right. The explanation for that is she likes that scene being in the previous movie. Meg is is so... The kookiness is so pronounced in Harry Met Sally and Sleepless. And in this, it's a little more muted. Like. mm -hmm. Even though she is still a kook, as yeah. we've been discussing, like, you know, it's it's not really there in the same flippertigibity kind of way. This movie's <laughs> so much more honest about how sad she is. Yes. Like, right, like, right. Sleepless in Seattle makes vague references to it. And one of them is um, more of like a joke. But the scene that I always think of as like a really sad moment in Sleepless in Seattle, that's like my favorite line in Sleepless in Seattle is when she's trying on the wedding dress and it tears mm-hmm. and she goes it's a sign and her mom goes you don't believe in signs and it's just like even when she's trying to open up her mom is like no 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 this isn't you you know like mm-hmm. that's kind of the extent of the window into her sadness that you get in sleepless in seattle as opposed to just her being like overtly crazy the entire time but like in you've got mail she is like a, a persistent refrain of this movie is that she's so lonely and she right. misses her mother so much. And she understands that she will never have the impact that her mother did. And her entire neighborhood was, was built up around this, like the true Piazza. Like Tom yeah. Hanks says that he built the Piazza, but it's like, she had the original Piazza in this neighborhood and she's like, I'll never build anything. And that's yeah. like, that's so persistent throughout the whole movie. And that doesn't mm. exist in either of the other ones. Like no, when I, I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the quote, like just quotes. And there's, I forgot this part where he's, where Frank Navasky is reciting something to get her pumped up for something. And he says, you are a lone reed standing tall, waving boldly oh, yeah. in the corrupt sands of commerce. And she goes, <laughs> I'm a lone reed. And he goes, yes, you're alone. Like, he's like telling her like, you're alone. Like he, she lives yeah. with this man and yeah. he's like, you are alone. <laughs> but, but on a fundamental level, you are alone in this yes. world. It's so bleak. There, there's also the Godfather, you know, the, which is a classic Efron thing, like Casablanca and, um, Harry Met Sally yeah. and the Dirty Dozen. You know, she loves to reference these like movies that men love. But like, there's the repeated like, you got to go to the mattresses, yeah. right? Right. But she never does. She never goes to war. Like she doesn't mm-hmm. even try. That's not even a plot. Well, of she movie. goes on New York One and does her. She little she yeah. goes to the press. Her war is that she begs yeah. her boyfriend to write an op-ed or whatever. Yeah. That and she's does like, would have, that be yeah. a conflict of interest? And I immediately out loud was like, yes. yes. <laughs> what? <laughs> you can't do that. He says yes too, and then he says no. <laughs> He's like, oh no, I don't know. Yeah, I just love how immediately that doesn't work too. Yeah. like, like isn't it the next scene? Birdie's like, no, no and growth year. Right, yeah, Meg Ryan's like, right. no difference. It's <laughs> yeah, done no difference. And then you're basically just cutting to them at Stapleton's house where they're like, yeah, well, the decision is no more store. But it's too real. That is such a real thing, though, like raising money for a cause and everyone getting fully around it and getting so into it and giving all their money. And it doesn't make a difference because a year later there it's the same issue or, you know, nothing has changed. The economy hasn't changed like the situation hasn't changed. So it's just like, yeah, it is. 
it is actually a truly like a very compact lesson in that where it's like everyone's willing to rally around and does really care, but cannot focus their entire lives around saving this business that is no longer a prof a business that can stay alive and, and it's like a, the author very, who's like i need to promote right. my book of course yeah. i'm gonna do it at fox books like that's where i'm gonna get more readers right there's there's a very earned cynicism and sort of like honest cynicism to the idea that yes. oh everyone loves the emotional idea of this store existing but also everyone loves saving money on books and being able to get a coffee at the same time. Yeah. Like as much as they're invested in the idea of shop around the corner, they cannot turn down the convenience of Fox books. Yeah. And just the idea that 22 years on, we miss borders right. and we <laughs> love those Barnes and Nobles that are still standing. Like the one yeah. in yes, the square, the one in the upper west. We're like, those are great places. Like <laughs> uh, they're part of the firmament and, of New York. <laughs> right. And if anything, those stores are dying and little bookstores yes. are coming yes. back. So yeah. you have now yes. the Wild. reverse. How would Nora even deal with know. this? I'm know. so curious how she would respond to the idea that it's like, now it's the reverse. The curation of the books is so much more valuable to people that Barnes and Noble is not really a thing anymore because people mm -hmm. are buying books online when they want to buy kind of cheap used books. She'd reopen a store. She would, yeah. In the sequel, yeah, she reopens truly. the store. Um, right. Yeah. Books are magic. I, I was just thinking about, and yeah. Jean Stapleton is so good in this movie. Like she so feels good. like she feels like a true gift. You feel very privileged to have had this know performance her. in this Every movie. Time she She's so on good. The screen, at it. You want to say to Nora, thank you so much. It's How did so, you know? It's just what I wanted. It's so gift. gentle and funny. When she's and it's like, like this from behind but, the thing. We're yeah, fine. But when she when she walks up and the whole but when she walks past the the window display of the author at Fox Books just to continue our last conversation, like she's not angry. No, she's, she's like, sort of, of like, she's like, well, we knew this was bound to happen. Like she's not upset. She's just very it's not sad. It's business. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can yeah. tell this woman is a, she's a volunteer. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell she's volunteering. Oh, oh yeah. Yes. Birdie is not getting a check. <laughs> no. She just knows the software. What do we think of Zahn? We haven't mentioned Zahn. I love Zahn. I'll take oh, any Zahn he's I can so, get. Yeah. He's very, very, very good. Uh, especially this funny. time period. He is so in the pocket of just like my favorite kind of character actor. And I put Heather Burns into this too, where it's like, sure. you can give them one scene and without stealing too much focus, they somehow find a way to make everything interesting. They're both just kind of innately interesting as performers. Their energy is bizarre. Their voices are bizarre. <laughs> bizarre. But they're also yeah. intelligent so bizarre. actors. Like they know how uh -huh. to underplay so stuff. They know He's when to take their actor. moments. They're both really good actors. This is the same year as uh, Out of Sight, which is yeah. awesome in. He's such a good foil to the to her, to yes. Meg Ryan's character, too. Like, she needs to be grounded by people who are, like, living a real life. And these people are living a real life, you know? I, yeah. think, I, I, had, I had a false Kazam-like memory that Zahn and Burns ended up at, together at the end of this movie. And mm -hmm. watching it, I think I just want that to happen. I think I just did slash fic in my head. You also want Navasky and Parker Posey to get yes. together. Like somehow right. you want them just mm -hmm. to switch. <laughs> I remember that happening too in my head. I feel like happened. we can just declare at canon that that probably happens. Oh, yeah. She definitely right. gives him a book deal. Uh, and Parker Posey is, of course, in Mixed Nuts. She's the rollerblader along with Jon Stewart. Right. So she had worked with Nora before. And apparently God, I need her to rewatch and Nora it. were good 
friends. Like they were that actually makes, social. That, that could not fun. make more sense. Right? Two New York that. women. Yeah. I have not seen Mixed Nuts since watching it, since renting it with my family when soon after it came out and everyone was like, what the fuck was that? And I never, right. I was like, oh, it's that movie sucks. And worse. I never gave it another thought. Very I mean, bizarre. This is, when she's in this, I feel like she's just fully it, the queen of indie cinema, right? Like she's been like doom <laughs> yes. generation, kicking and screaming, uh, suburbia, Basquiat, House of Yes, House of yes yeah. waiting for Guffman. Yeah. Like that's all leading up to this. And I feel like it's still a novelty for her to be in a mainstream movie when she's, in, it's like, oh, Parker Posey, like the coolest girl. If you guys haven't seen um, the remake of High Fidelity TV show, which is shockingly good. Yeah, I don't I even it. know I not, how yeah, I have not watched it. Oh my, this has no right to be good. It yeah. is literally should be against the law for it to be good, but it's fantastic. <laughs> and there's an episode that you could just watch this episode where Parker Posey is in it and she plays this New York City Upper West Side woman who is selling her like shitty husband's records to them. And yeah. she is so good. And it really reminded me of this woman. It's like the future of this woman whose yeah. name I'm now, what Ultra is her name dorm. when you got mail? What's her name? Um, What's her character's name? Patricia uh, Eden. Uh, I, oh, yes. oh yeah. Clearly, Patricia. I'm. Yeah. Patricia. Oh, because Patricia makes coffee coffee nervous. Patricia makes coffee that. nervous. The best line. Okay, sorry. Yeah. So she. I always think of that five fidelity woman as the future Patricia. Like that is just what she became. You know that and woman. Hank said like so perfectly. She's perfect casting, and her performance is perfect because from the moment you see them on screen together, you're like, oh, this is a temporary thing. Yeah, but it makes <laughs> yeah. it makes sense that they would have oh, totally. like, found a way to connect at some point and say, hey, this sort of works on paper. Let's They're both cynical well. in the same kind of way, right. yeah. in, in the way that Kinnear and Ryan make sense on paper. But they're mm-hmm. yet, like, yeah, unfortunately, we just don't love each other. But it works on paper. Do you think Nora's like the movie's too cute as it is with the little, sh- you know, with the email? Like maybe I, I shouldn't have everyone else linking up at the end. I don't know. I uh, thank God she didn't. The yeah. movie's long enough. We don't need like the two butlers getting together. We don't right, need right. it. The babysitter that's, and the the valet get together. Like true. we don't need it. Nancy <laughs> Myers is starting you know, around the same time as this yeah. movie's coming out. And she's like, yeah, baby, everyone's going to be together at the end. I agree with that. It's better for the film. That having been said, Jeffrey Wells style, I would like to ask the ghost of Nora Ephron to quietly send me the footage of Steve Zahn and Heather Burns fucking <laughs> on a soundstage. Not private Because they videos. filmed it. Yes, they filmed they it. Filmed it. <laughs> they filmed it. Uh, Bobby, you were going to talk about the, the elevator scene. Um... I I just love the elevator scene. It's just I I think that it it's something that Nora does very well, which is take a situation that seems very contrived mm-hmm. um, and add a lot of humanity to it and um, turn it into something actually memorable and um, sort of very profound. Yeah, like something about like getting trapped in an elevator with who like essentially cliches like right. the Upper West Side witchy witch rich woman with no personality other than the fact that i have a small dog and i'm rich and right. the uh, michael you know, Badalucci, Nora, show I'm, another we haven't shouted uh, him out yet so but good. you know and and the fact that like it's 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 weird to to see like this like upper west side woman like nora efron like sort of write people who were in the service industry and you're like oh this is probably going to come across as condescending and shitty and like it's not yeah and he, he actually right. he is the reason that Tom Hanks is like, this sucks. Wait, what yeah. am I doing? Yeah. I'm doing this all wrong. That line that I'm going to poorly paraphrase now. I, but love like, her. I, I was envious of a man knowing with such confidence what he yeah. wanted in life. Yeah. He realizes and that I think guy that, has it much better than he does. That could have been 
so, so condescending. Yeah. And yeah. it's not. Yeah. And the and also the idea of getting trapped in an elevator is like kind of a big New York thing. Not just because it's we live in buildings, we live in old buildings. Yes, and so right. elevators yeah. break all the time. So that, that the New Yorkiness of that is right. Those weird old shuttery elevators, they're still all over the Upper West Side. And that everyone has this sort of like uh, you know, folk remedy to fixing like right. an elevator. <laughs> Everyone jumps. If we push right. all the buttons, I don't know, maybe like that. Everything about that rings true, even though the situation feels so comical and, and implausible. Like, and I, I don't feel know. like most yeah. versions of that scene are the meat cute or the scene that finally makes the two people work through their issues and realize that they kind yeah. of love each other. And instead she uses it to end the unnecessary romance yeah. of a different character, you know? He finally sees her. Well, it's also because she's like, if I ever, if I ever get out of here, I'm getting my eyes lasered. And then yeah. he goes to say something like, like beautiful, like everyone else. And she says, she's like, where are my TikToks? Where are my TikToks? <laughs> and then He's she like, goes, what? You. <laughs> it's perfect. Okay. Can we dissect a similarly crucial scene? Uh, the Zabar's line. Yes. Oh, oh my God. What a Sarah great Sarah Ramirez. Sarah Ramirez. Which is another scene. classic, as you're saying, like kind of New York situation. It's like, what if you got in the wrong fucking line and it was cash only? And <laughs> the all people are going to yell at you. The people with their smoked fish are behind you with their pitchforks. <laughs> it's like 6 p.m. And only on a Tuesday. The worst <laughs> time to go. <laughs> It's so cute. Uh, and it does. Pu- it really pushes the neighborhood thing that you would run into yes. someone at Zabar's like very yes. likely. And I think a lot of people do run into people they know at Zabar's, you know, that's not unusual. Mm-hmm. And so, like, the fact that they run into each other is not one of those rom-com meet cute yeah, things. No. It feels like a real situation that she's already she's already set it up so that you believe that, which I like a lot, that mm-hmm. these two would keep running into each other and then kind of run into each other on purpose. The, the first- Sarah Ramirez is. Oh, no, where are you going to say, Bobby? I was just going to say Sarah Ramirez is like the the mo- her, her best moment is whenever she goes from smiling yes. and being charmed by Tom Hanks to being like completely like <laughs> despising of, of, of Meg Ryan. That that facial transition is always hilarious. It was the first movie ever to shoot at Zabar's, which is crazy because it feels like everyone should have been using this as a location for 30 years. But um, the other thing is they would only give them one night to shoot it. And it was that like in between operation hours. So they filmed the entire wow. thing from like 10 p.m. until 5 a.m. And Hanks, consummate pro he is, mayor of Hollywood, uh, mm. apparently kept on getting on the Zabar's PA system, which they used to announce like which items are special deals to entertain all the extras and keep spirits oh. high at like four o'clock he in the morning. Just... The one that, that Nora Ephron quoted, which is too fucking charming to handle is he apparently got on the PA and went, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, shoppers at Zabar's uh, want to announce that Meg Ryan is appetizing. Uh, Meg <laughs> Ryan is appetizing. Wow, what That's a cute. what an angel what sent from heaven. Yep. We're too, the shoe is might drop. That's how good he is. The shoe is about to drop. I worry every day of my life. I also feel like this is... Th- to me, this seems like such an accurate representation of who Tom Hanks is as a person. Yes. Like he's a 
rich and powerful man. <laughs> yeah. Like he's an asshole. Right. Well, he's a rich and powerful baby boomer man. Yeah, of course just, he's an asshole. Of course he could be snarky, but he's also a sweetie pie. Yes. And I think that this is the closest, not that I know Tom Hanks, but like to me, this is how I picture sure. him in real life. The dude like, loves a, a typewriter. Who is also like, you, you want nothing more than to be friends with him. Like, but this is what I wanted to say about the Zabar scene, the, 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 what you're talking about, essentially. Like, she's in the line. She can't pay. She doesn't have cash. <laughs> okay. So she's pleading for to use her credit card. Sarah Ramirez is giving her, you know, the hard line. Then Tom Hanks comes in, does the same thing. And what's the message here? Like, because it's not like he's like, you catch more flies with honey. She wasn't being rude. She was doing the same thing, which is just like, look... I'm sorry. What am I going to do? Like, you know, and Tom Hanks just comes in and sort of mansplains the yeah. exact same. He's like, there's a credit card reader. And Sarah Ramirez is like, well, all right. So it's the idea. It's just like, he's just automatically gets a pass. Cause he's a rich, yes. charming guy. Yes. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yes. I yes. think, I think that's part of it. And I also think like the statement here is you're casting Meg Ryan, who at this point is still firmly America's sweetheart. Like that everyone her calls thing. her America's sweetheart. She's like the cutest, most charming. We all want to be her. We all want to be with her movie star in the nineties. And yep. Tom Hanks is sort of the male equivalent of that. But also he is objectively playing the asshole in this movie. He is playing the villain to the business conflict of this film. I think the point is because I, I was thinking this while watching it, the inverse of the bonfire of the vanities problem, where he's supposed to be unsavory in that movie, but there, mm -hmm. even when he's playing his most unsavory, there's still something kind of charming and likable about Tom Hanks that right. he cannot sure. dim. And I think that the, can't the, turn off, yeah, the right. point is, it's not that he's being better to Sarah Ramirez than Meg Ryan is. It's not like she's not being considerate. She's being very sincere and sort of like considerate in her earnest plea please just help me out. The point the movie needs to make with this scene is there's something undeniable about Tom Hanks, even when he is going to be responsible for shutting down her business. Yeah, right. He's come out and said about, remember when there was that, all that like kind of weird press around him being like, I don't play villains or like, I'm not yeah. like, oh, I don't want to play. Rogers, a, yeah. He was like, I don't want right. to play a villain. Like I did. But I think it's also that like he exactly. is not, maybe he's not meant to play a villain. Yes. He's not really good at playing a villain. And a lot of directors and writers maybe know that when they're like looking for a Tom Hanks vehicle. Right. Bonfire's <laughs> also his biggest failure. Like that's his biggest yes. mistake as an actor. I think he took that L hard and it's not about like, I don't want to ding my reputation. It's I fundamentally know there are things the audience will not buy me doing. Right. But I think that's why the Mr. Rogers role was so successful yes. for him because if you, it's more, it, it's referenced in the movie. It's referenced in A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. But in the documentary, it's very explicit that like his children don't really like yes. him. They had a terrible relationship. Right. He, they had a lot of problems with him as a father. Like he kind of was an asshole, too. Yeah. Like, so I think that thing where he has to play a little bit of both, but ultimately Charmer wins yes. is the thing that he does best. That movie's incredible. Yeah. It's because it's tying the Hanks persona to the Rogers yeah. persona. But also, right? I read this Marielle Heller interview where she said, I couldn't make sense of how to tackle this movie. And then I reread the script and I realized Mr. Rogers is the antagonist of the film. 100%. Like, yeah. like when Mr. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
that scene yeah. in Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood where he starts taking out the toys to talk to Matthew Reese is yeah. like a horror scene. Right. Like yeah. Matthew Reese is like, stop it, stop it. I'm yeah. not into this. But it's also just like, yeah, like Tom Hanks is the same character in our culture as Mr. Rogers is in people who right. have Mr. Rogers in their culture. He is this this iconic, nice man, but he is unknowable. He right, is, right. this is- And there's like he'll, a force he'll, field around him. Right, and we yes. could, everyone who knows him could say, he's a great guy, I know know him but like you don't know him no one will ever know him and that is that's why that casting was so great because it yes. is like if, if when there's a movie made about tom hanks yeah maybe there is one day it will have to be the same Fuck. type Absolutely. of structure right <laughs> who's gonna play hanks ansel ansel elgort <laughs> josh gad is tom hanks I think no. I think I think you're right, and obviously, like Hanks is very effective in a number of different types of roles, including man who was very good at his job. But there's something about when he uses that tension, knowing that he can never play full villain, but like the thing going on here and in Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, and even sort of it's the flip side of this, but something like um, a Road to Perdition which is sort of mm -hmm. like the most villainous character. He's, I mean, he's literally like a murderer and a gangster, but that mm -hmm. movie plays all- but he's like a dad. That's the thing. It plays <laughs> off that tension of when yeah. it started out and the guy seems like a sociopath and he's totally cold and shut off. But the crux of the movie is he's going to let too much of the Hanks shine through. There's something mm -hmm. about this guy that is willing to die in order to preserve his son's humanity. I don't think- him not wanting to play villains is a protectiveness ego thing. I can. think it is just right. I, he can't. Yeah, know? I think so too. And that's, but it's funny because that's how it came out through the press where he yes. was just like, I just don't like playing bad guys. Everyone's well, like, right. when Road to Perdition comes out, which he is not a bad guy in, but he is a murderer. Yes. There was a fucking like, you know, they had to have a whole PR thing of like, yeah, Tom Hanks, he's gone dark. Yeah. You know, even um, though he is the forget. hero of that film. He plays the Mark Zuckerberg character in The Circle, I've a very bad guy. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, He's a villain a in that. Movie. That movie is unfortunately not very good. Mm. Um, no, it's it's so unfortunate it. how bad that movie. No, no, no. Uh, it, that book is great. Man, it's man, so sad how bad that movie is. It's really yes. sad. Um uh, he's also, of course, the villain, the Lady Killers. I'm trying to think of any other. The Lady Killer is a huge flop for him. I mean, that was the. I know, end no, of I know, but he's good in and the circle. I agree. No, he's, he's great. Really in funny it. In the it. Lady Killers is the movie the that Killers. ends his ten-year, hundred million dollar grocer run. Like, and that was the last time he was like pure villain. Even if it's funny. I think so, right? Well, The Circle, but... Uh, the Circle doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Let's you can not talk about it as many times as you want. It still doesn't exist, and that's a fact. Um, I so welcome you the to circle. The Circle, Griffin. Join <laughs> The Circle. Uh, John Boyega's in that movie. No, wait, no, he isn't because it doesn't exist. You can't be in a movie that doesn't exist. Um, in um, The Circle, Emma Roberts catches him Emma having Watson. sex. Emma Watson <laughs> catches him. Anyways, that movie is so bad. It's so bad. So, so bad. Well, I find we don't your talk fan about fiction it. very interesting, Lindsay, describing a movie Because <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't exist. <laughs> true, true, true. Okay. I wanted to talk about, we spent a lot of time on Tom Hanks, but I wanted to talk about Meg Ryan because the year before this, mm -hmm. she was in a, another New York-y rom-com that I saw for the first time recently. Um, what are you talking the about? Podcast, the masterpiece Richard, Addicted to Love? Addicted to Love. Yes. Which is a very downtown New York movie, and uh, a very a very that, caustic movie. That movie's in my neighborhood. That movie's got some big downtown Griffin inside. I love that movie. <laughs> but the movie is not very good. It's really interesting. It's That's outrageous. This movie, that movie is great. 
I can't I, I can't call it great. It's tough for me. I've only seen it once also. D- David but, has many times tried to sell me on the idea of doing a Griffin Dunn miniseries because he so badly wants to cover a day to love. <laughs> and Practical Magic. Those are the two. Those are the twin. I pillars. love Practical Magic. But I think so I think that Meg the reason I bring it up is I think that it's the it's the opposite yeah. here. I think Meg can do both. I think I Meg is too. capable of being like yes. a really dark, yeah. villainous, questionable character. Like Addicted to Love is pretty straightforward, but if that were more of a thriller and you were supposed to be like, what is Meg Ryan up to? Like she's capable of playing those things. And in, in Addicted to Love, she plays an asshole. She plays like a true lunatic. Me- Meg it just Ryan so happens she meets has, someone else who's a lunatic. But despite being yeah. a, a full stop movie star, Meg Ryan has more character actor versatility than Hanks does yeah. in terms of how she can play with the persona. And like in the, the cut, in the cut that came right after, Tom yeah. Hanks could not do the equivalent of in no. the cut. No. Well, I'd like to see him try. <laughs> I would too. I would love no. to see Tom Hanks suck Mark Ruffalo's dick. But, no. That's what you're but saying. I don't think that Tom Hanks could do the weird rom-com. Yes. I think that could. Meg Ryan can do the weird maybe, rom-com. Maybe pre-Sleepless in Seattle he could have, right? Where he's maybe not quite as established as Tom Hanks. Yeah, like, Turner and Hooch. I mean, that's his weird rom-com. Because the um, money pit is like weird yeah. but it's a pretty straightforward rom-com. right like that's like, the thing joe versus the volcano the money put the burbs that's sort of like volcano, when that is his yeah. weird rom-com i mean that's the answer yeah, yeah. but he's not a bad guy like no, he's not he's a not bad, bad guy, guy in it no. meg ryan so. post this like it is because like this movie is a big box office hit she's had some flops in between this and sleepless yeah. in seattle like courage under fire didn't really work addicted to love was a flop i feel like french kiss was not a, no i think it did okay i love french kiss and you can't stream it anywhere that's weird. I mean, IQ was definitely a bomb. That's a weird. So weird. Movie. What but a like, weird movie. <laughs> think about how different the 90s were, where you just listed four or five bombs in between. And even still, that entire time period, she was uncontested America's sweetheart. Yeah, I, I would say so. She didn't and then lose that this, title. This year she has You've Got Mail and she has City of Angels, which despite being a remake of a German masterpiece is roundly just dismisses like eh, chick flick wow. right like yeah, at right. the time right yes. we wouldn't have uninvited without city of angels it is it. one of the best I, twists. I, I am not dismissing it i'm saying that it, one of the, the most time, heartbreaking like, twists in cinema <laughs> yes can i um, bobby and Lindsay? can i give the two of you the pitch that i came up with in our previous episode oh god please yeah i think nicholas cage and john travolta should have done a face-off style swap I think Nicolas Cage should have played Michael and John Travolta should have been in City of Angels with Meg Ryan. Yes. Well, didn't he, Mike, didn't he play an that angel actually, in Michael? That's, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying okay. do a, that's a face-off angel swap. <laughs> that's amazing. Right? Doesn't that improve both yeah. films? Yeah. Oh, you're saying Cade should have been Michael. That's, well, yes. Michael was so I don't weird. Even think Michael, Michael the no character. Commentary. That's correct. That's, that's, that's fine. Problem. I think Cage is weirder in yeah. a way that would fit yes. Michael. And Travolta yes. is a little more successful at playing conventional romantic lead at I'm this right. one moment. Michael, yes, Michael would have like worked if it was Nick the Cage. In the middle yeah. of nowhere, right. thinking about how good of an idea that is. Right, that's good. <laughs> Sorry, nobody's ready to reclaim Michael, but if it was Nick Cage, we might be ready to we reclaim tried. Michael. Look, we spent two hours plus in our last episode trying to reclaim it, and I, I'll tell okay. you, it's kind of impossible. Yeah, it's impossible. Sorry, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> So Meg Ryan, I'm just like, so after, you know, she's doing great when You've Got Mail comes out, right? Big hit. She's, I think she's about 36, 37 when this movie comes out. And then, then she has in 2000, she has Hanging Up, which Griffin, we're going to discuss on Patreon. On Patreon. We're doing that as a Patreon bonus. 
Um, Delia. Sort of, um, yes. And so that's not a hit, but whatever. Like, you know, you, that, it's sort of similar to like a French kiss where like it did okay, you know, didn't hurt anyone's feelings. She's got proof of life and the big sort of Russell Crowe, quote unquote, scandal where she, you know, and Dennis Quaid break up. Which in 2001, her. she it has Kate and Leopold, which I love, is a, it's a decent, you know, hit. Yeah. decent hit and is a great movie. And that's more her just being like, I'll do a rom-com. But then after that, it's over. It's like over. She does in the cut and then it's just over. The Russell Crowe thing totally ruins her. And what is Russell Crowe ruined it? What is more? And it's Russell Crowe and in the cut. Yes. Right. Like, you know, yeah. they're very separate things. But like Russell right. Crowe ruins it. And then in the cut, people are like, no, you're not allowed to do this. We here. give up. Right. Right. And then the cut is amazing. It's also it's one of those amazing. things with distance where you're like, it is so incredibly sexist that the Russell Crowe thing destroyed her that hard when Russell Crowe only grew in prominence because it, of it. It was it was literally good press for Russell Crowe and bad press for her. And also, how many fucking times did Dennis Quaid cheat on her? I'm not speaking right. to any knowledge I have, but come on. Like, water is yeah. wet. No, that she was... She left Dennis Quaid. That was the story. It was like, can you believe this idiot right. woman? We, we thought she was America's sweetheart and she just ruined this like perfect marriage. Right. And now we know That's that like, Dennis Quaid was. was like, you know, a cokehead for like that entire He's still period of time. Asshole. Right. He's, He's still he, such an asshole. Right. So in the 90s, Trump. there was just yeah. that. There was that thing of like, if two movie stars are married to each other. That is the ideal marriage. Right. <laughs> like that was like that was just how People Magazine, yeah. et cetera, thought of it. It yeah. was like Bruce Willis and Demi Moore are married. Can you imagine? That must be the perfect um, marriage. Can I, must know, be bliss. can I shout out their son, Jack Quaid, who's turned Rules. out to be a really good actor Griffin, you know and choosing yeah. amazing projects, even though, again, he's not been in that many projects, but he's out here doing like The Boys, which was great on he's Amazon and fucking plus one. One of the best rom-coms of the past five years somehow that got... Oh. Nowhere, um, but I'll say this too: Jack Quaid, a friend, worked with him on vinyl. Great guy. He is also one of those dudes who, for being the son of two massive movie stars, has yeah. no fucking ego, no entitlement whatsoever. He is like that's consummate, like just fucking amazing actors work ethic. I'm going to do whatever I can to make the scene work. I'm going to go out of my way to treat everyone well on set. I want to believe he got that from Meg Ryan, but he is just sort of like, he's, he's a fucking great guy. He's the real deal. So you're saying he's the opposite of Chet Hayes, Tom Hanks. Yes, son with, uh, Reed Wilson. Exactly. Cool, 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 right. cool, cool, he's, cool. He's what you want Tom Hanks as a son to be. Do you think Chet Hayes will play Tom Hanks in the Tom Hanks movie 10 years from now? He'll try. He'll try. He's going to play Peter Stolari. Um, just, I feel like we already talked about this on this podcast, but I still will always cherish the day when Tom Hanks had coronavirus and Chet Hayes be became a voice of reason yes. online where he's yes. like, you know, one love to everyone. Like dad's doing okay. Like on Instagram. And I was watching it sincerely being like, Oh, he's giving me news about Tom Hanks. Yes. And I appreciate it. Right. I always call Chet Rita's son. I, yes. That's Rita's sure, son. That's sure. Rita's it's boy. Rita's right. That's Rita's uh -huh. boy. <laughs> but on that day, he revealed himself to be a steady hand of recent. <laughs> like, I absolutely appreciated his uh, content that day and not the content of the leaders of our country. Right. Like, I was like, at least Chet is giving me facts on the ground. <laughs> I mean, he's he's weird, but he got sober in the past few years. So That's he true. went from being truly a terror to being right. just weird, just weird. Right. You know, right. I hope <laughs> yeah. Chet Hayes wins an Oscar. I want I want him to prove us all. Best wrong. original song. It's weirder happening. things have happened. Or best picture. 
He's oh. not terrible in Shameless. He's on Shameless, or he was on Shameless for a few episodes. He's not the worst. He's, He's not great. Actor. Every time I've seen him pop up in something as an actor, often in a very small role, I'm like, fuck, he is, he's pretty solid. He He's, does he's okay. He's yeah. okay. I had no idea he was in Shameless, but it is also like, if you pointed a gun at me and were like, is Shameless still on the air? I'd be like, Yes, and they'd be like, it's "What going on season is that?" I'd be like, oh, <laughs> "I don't know." Eleven. It's like Showtime's? the longest yes. running show on on pay yeah. cable. It's 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 Showtime's it's, Gunsmoke. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it has more episodes than Ozzy and Harriet. When Felicity Huffman went to prison, she was like, "Well, at least we'll always have the Shameless the paycheck." Shameless money. Like, <laughs> shameless was a UK show, and the premise of it is like, "What if there was a family that was wacky that lived on the wrong side <laughs> yeah. of the tracks?" And Showtime was like, "We'll take that premise, thank you, and milk it for a generation." I mean, that show is very uh, problematic in many ways, mm-hmm. but a lot of people really love it because it is like one of the few shows that's like about poor people in a way that like a lot of shows are not even though the show itself when you watch it because it's been going on for honestly way too long has had to have so many storylines that it's just gotten so far out of control even Emmy Rossum was like I can't even do this anymore and this show made me who I am I have to get out of here but like the show is weirdly interesting and if you look at it from that lens but only very briefly Shameless just ended in January it's 10th season on air there have been 122 episodes <laughs> and they're gonna they're doing an 11 of course they are an angel yeah well as long as william h macy steps up to the plate they'll do it um can i offer my big take on this movie yes you've got please me. i want nothing more for how much i feel like Nora Ephron movies are sort of quoted and shorthanded being like the most generic prototypical like if well executed but it's like oh you know that type of like rom-com The two Hanks Ryan movies, which are seen as like the big ones, are both weirdly experimental in their approach to a rom-com. Because Sleepless in Seattle is obviously like, can you create a rom-com with chemistry between the two actors without them ever actually communicating until the last scene of the movie? And then this feels like an opposite test, which is like, they're in the movie a lot together. But what you guys were sort of talking about of like, the Hanks character is so much more of an asshole than you're used to this character being. And the Meg Ryan character is so much sadder than you're used to this character being in any sort of like oil and water rom-com like this, where it's like a Hepburn and Tracy, they fight and they fight and they fight until they realize they have to be together movie. That's pretty much always the dynamic. Like one is always like a little too snide and flinty. And one is always like a little sad and lonely. And ultimately they realize they have to be together. And this movie is her pushing those two things to their furthest extremes that she can because you have this narrative conceit in the middle, which is in the email exchanges, they can just be pure rom-com bliss. Like in the scenes where they're not actually together, they can be the most romantic, the most charming, cross-cutting in different rooms. So that allows you to be like, we're going to actually investigate like the sadness of a manic pixie dream girl so that she no longer becomes that. And yeah. like mm-hmm. the horrible qualities of like the confident, like man with the quip at the ready at all times until he yeah. no longer becomes a good guy. Yeah. I just saying there's something about you saying this wasn't the way that rom-coms were prototypically then, but I think Nora Ephron she made now going forward, rom-coms are the way that Nora Ephron yeah. made them. Like yes. she changed the 
now we all think of now every rom-com is sleepless and as uh is you've uh oh my god is but, <laughs> so, whatever no, but you know right. what yes yeah. yes that's yeah. Lindsay that's kind of what I was gonna say it's like I I think there's been so much for, for the past 10 plus years there has been that like bubbling narrative of like man I wish we had rom-coms again yeah. and like yes. unpacking that unpacking that it's narrative so would take another two hours and it's it's its own mess but I think speaking for myself because i felt the same way for a long time but then i think it was like a few times ago because i watched you've got mail a few times a year and it was a, a maybe a, maybe a year or two ago i was watching it and i was like wait a second i don't miss rom-coms i miss nora efron rom-coms i miss like three or four you know yeah. like of course these aren't going to come back because she's dead. And this was a very specific time and place. Like, it's not that I miss the rom-com. I miss this specific thing. And guess what? I can watch it whenever the fuck I want. I and I think the close, which is why I think the, the rom-com that I think is my favorite since you've got mail is probably enough said, which I think mm. captures Great this movie. dynamic pretty closely mm-hmm. um, in that you have this person, like these people who are, being deceitful and people who are being really, really messy because they are in love mm-hmm. and people who have to deal with their own personal shit before they can deal with other, another person's shit. And, and that's part of it. But it's like, I miss Nora Ephron. I miss You've Got Mail. It's not yeah. that I miss the the general concept of a rom-com. Mm-hmm. I miss the way these people talk and I miss the way these people like. I think there's also the, the missing the rom-com thing is also just the loss of like a mid-tier movie. Yeah, like absolutely. the loss of like, that's, that's the I thing, always right. think of it. Mm-hmm. It's not even like rom-com. It's just like, what's a movie that cost X amount of money that's not a huge that's not superhero. superhero or an indie? Dirt cheap. Yeah. So it's like everything in the middle is is lost. Maybe and, and we'll come back because of streaming. As well. Yeah. I mean, it's a movie that is driven by a star and not a franchise. The franchise is the star. And, and I think actors want to make those movies, though. They want to, but they they have a hard time finding the ones that then become whatever the, I think like for example I don't know if it's even good but like the lovebirds that movie that just came out that's on Netflix yeah. is one of those types of movies I don't know if it's good again but like that feels and the, the rom-com lo- but Mariel Heller movies too long yes. shot the long shot great right. rom-com one of those movies felt in between somehow not crazy expensive or dirt cheap had and, a star and had stars yeah and um, didn't do right. well I mean I opened it against Avengers is still one of the weirdest things Yes, I do. I do think, um, I mean, I have a couple things to say here, but, uh, mm. the one that I always jump to when I think about like, what's my model for the best rom-com of the last 10 years, like modern is, uh, sleeping with other people, which I love. And I feel like yes. Leslie Headland is someone who is kind of an heir apparent to, and she look, there are a lot of things that Net- uh, Leslie Headland is good at that she could do in her career. I'm very mm-hmm. excited to see her make a star Wars show. But I also feel like she is someone who could have a uh, Nora Ephron or Nancy yes, Myers yes, or Cameron Crowe or Denzel Brooks type yes. career where she is a writer director with a very specific sense of sort of like a acerbic comedy, character driven comedy, mm-hmm. good star. Bobby vehicles, knows that's one of my favorites. I think that, that is one of my favorites. Fucking rules so hard. But I do think that's another problem. We talk about what killed the rom-com. You know, the main culprit is. They are very cultural. They're very specific to cultures and stars and comedy is very cultural. And in the 10 years where the industry shifts to being very global, you want movies that Mm -hmm. can play equally well in any country. 
rom-coms go first and then non-rom-com comedies go second because mm-hmm. those things mm-hmm. don't translate as well. Um, but the other part of it is I think if you look at the 2000s and more and more rom-coms start to be written and directed by men. And I, you know, I'm not saying only a woman can make a rom-com, but I was watching this movie and thinking about the fact we have covered now four filmmakers on blank check who have predominantly done rom-coms or, or rom-com adjacent movies. And they're Cameron Crowe, James L. Brooks, Nora Ephron, and Nancy Myers. And yeah. two of those four guys got Best Picture nominations and Best Director nominations. And the women did not. Brooks won. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, the right. women did not. She she got like a nomination for Sleepless in Seattle. Right. And, uh, and one for When Harry Met Sally, one for Silkwood. That's it. Right. And Nora, uh, Nancy Rather got the Private Benjamin nomination. But, but <laughs> well, I, and like when this movie came out, it obviously completely fluff. ignored. People uh, are not it, it's, Ryan, it's not a real movie. Meg Ryan got the token Golden Globe nom and that's it. Right. And, it, and like, even though this movie was a Christmas hit, like there was, there would never have been anyone to suggest like, no. oh, well we should like take this seriously. Right. Like even the fucking Globes didn't nominate Hanks. Like that's insane. And I do mm-hmm. think, you know, there are other things you can analyze in terms of the differences between the Efron canon, the Myers canon, and on the other side, the Crow Brooks canon. But it does sort of speak to a thing of just how much seriously these films seem to be taken when they're directed by women. Oh, it's just pure entertainment. That's not a substantive movie. But yet, the ones that linger tend to be those ones that are written by a very specific sense of, of comedy, sense of respectful viewpoints, writer, director, female tour, like, okay. like Hall of Center, like, okay. like Headland. But this is the All final right. thing I want to say. I'm building I know, to a point I just here, have something okay? I need to tell you. I know. This is the final thing I want to say. Uh, in that 10 years later retrospective, Hanks talks about how difficult making this movie was in a certain way because Ephraim was known for being very exacting. And he was saying the scene, the Cafe Lalo scene is like the hardest scene he's ever done as an actor. It was a four night shoot. It's an incredibly long, like 12 page scene oh. or whatever it is. And Nora Ephron, I didn't know this did extensive rehearsals for all of her movies in a way that the only other person I know who did this in the last 30 or 40 years was Sidney Lumet, where she would collect her actors in like a black box theater and tape out the sets and give them fake props and run every scene with full blocking weeks in advance before when they film so that when they actually get to the set, it's just perfecting the fine details, but was locking everything in. I mean, she was very rigorous, which people don't talk about because they assume, oh, she's just kind of funny and light and she hires movie stars and they show up and they do the work. And Hanks was like, I was pulling out my hair trying to figure out that scene. It was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. And he said, I think it is the most sophisticated scene I have ever seen in a movie that is not <laughs> supposed to be viewed as sophisticated. Right. Yeah. And I think that's such I mean, a great yeah. descriptor for everything she did well. It's like the sophistication she is applying to everything in terms of form, in terms of actual just insight is so invisible and she's not asking to be taken seriously as a prestige movie. She is trying to make pure entertainment for people. As a writer, she was already a director. I mean, right. she was like born to be a director, even, you know, like people always talk about like the writers who say the actors can't improvise. You got to say everything from the script. It's like that was her from the beginning. And maybe that would have been been seen as uptight when for like a man, it's seen as like he's just very precise. Like you just yeah. have to stay on script. It's like it's a mm-hmm. it's part, you know, it's part of the film or whatever. But it's like she was already at that point. And I think also it's something like these actors 
are willing to give Nora whatever she wants at this point. Like, th- like th- that Tom Hanks, who up until her death, di- I mean, I remember he did a Broadway show that I went to that yeah, she wrote. Like he guy. would do, he would do anything for her, right. you know? And so that mm-hmm. was from the very start to do that type of elaborate rehearsal for a movie I, like I this. Think, like, I think he almost pointedly did that play because he knew she was dying. Like he wanted to pay tribute yeah. to her. One that play was time. weird. I, I gotta that. say, yeah. weird play, weird play. F- very F- <laughs> strange final- play. Anecdote before David says this very important thing. In the steam, this is, it, this is getting so much buildup for something that's going to be total bullshit. No, it's going to be so important. Everyone's going to love it, and David's about to win another Obi. But uh, <laughs> Hanks was saying he was pulling his hair out and he couldn't make sense of the Lalo scene, and he just couldn't get over like, why is he here? Like, why does he go into the cafe? Why does he stay this long? Why does he torture her to this extent? And he kept on trying out different things right. and it wasn't working. And the script supervisor is the one who came to him and just said, Tom, you want to tell her it's you. Your motivation in this scene is you think if you stay longer, you'll finally build up the courage to say it. And that's what he's playing. And it's so good. And that's why that scene is so good. Well, you want him to say it too. Right. David is now going to say the most important thing that anyone's ever said in the history of this podcast. So Griffin, you, you pointed out, I know I mentioned Meg Ryan nominated for a golden globe, best performance by an actress in a comedy or musical. Uh, she lost. She did not win. As you might guess, she, she lost to Gwyneth Paltrow for Shakespeare in Love, who goes on to win the Oscar. Right. Mm-hmm. Nothing crazy about that. Nope. Right. Mm-hmm. But then you all you you also mentioned Tom Hanks was not nominated for best actor. So can you tell me the five nominees for best performance by an actor in a comedy or musical? At the 1998 Golden Globes. Okay. And just to be clear, Hanks was nominated for drama actor the same year at the he Globes? He was for Saving Private Ryan. Right. He famously lost to Jim Carrey, who was then snubbed by the Oscars. Right. Okay. So best comedy, 1998. Here's what I want to say to you. I think you can get four. I don't think you could ever get the winner unless you just remembered him winning. I definitely watched the ceremony live. Is is Ben Stiller for something about Mary one of the nominees? No. No, he is not. Cameron Diaz did get nominated? Uh, Yes, she did. Okay, I'm trying to think. Comedies of 1998. Are they all comedies or is one of them sneaking in under the musical? I don't know that I would explicitly call any of these movies a comedy, but certainly they all fit. But none of them are musicals. They are all comic dramas or comic adventures. One of them, I guess, is kind of a comedy. I don't fucking know. Zero nominees from this category are nominated for Oscars. Comic Adventures, 1998. <laughs> so zero of these nominees <laughs> go on to get Wait, Oscar this nominations. List is Only like three the of worst. the drama nominees made it. They Brilliant. they sub in two other guys who were ignored by the Globes. You couldn't pay me anything to watch these movies in a row. This <laughs> this is the worst th- movie marathon. Are these movies it's mostly some of them like are good movies? Hits? I like a couple of the movies. Yeah. I would say, by and large, these were hits. There's one kind of Oscar-y. There's a couple of Oscar-y. I don't know. There's really only two hits in here, actually. God damn it. What the fuck are right, okay. these be- All right. All right. So here's some clues. I can't right. Okay. Yeah. Give me clues. One of them is, um, it's like a big adventure movie, a huge action hit from 1998. It's- and it's actually a good job on the Globes for nominating this performance. It's a great performance, and it's sort of underrated. Although I feel like now everyone's talking about this movie again. Fun movie. For night, oh, Great oh, movie. Antonio Banderas Nascazoro. That's right. Okay, so that's one. Okay, two cool is an actor. Two is an actor we talked about extensively just now. He's been in multiple Nora Ephron movies, and it's sort of weird that the Oscars snubbed him. 
This so was this, like a big acty performance from him playing a basically playing a real guy. A real guy. It's, it's versus tra- it's Travolta. Yeah. In nineteen ninety-eight. Oh, it's a big novel Yeah. Wow. Okay. Okay. So that's two. Three is. Uh, the one of the huge comedy stars of the '90s in a massive hit. It just happens to be a terrible movie. Is it? Is it another Jim Carrey movie? No. But it's a big comedy star You're of the close. '90s, and You're it happens close. to be terrible. And I'm close. Terrible movie, and but it was a huge hit. Yeah, it's a terrible movie. It's a huge hit. Was he a comedy this star was, who came out of TV? Yes, I mean, and this was definitely being positioned as an Oscar movie. It just fucking sucked. So. <laughs> But it was a it was a huge hit. Like it made a hundred million plus dollars. The like, movie you know, is Patch Adams. Yes. So Robin Williams. Okay. Okay. Fourth is one of the most famous movie stars of all time in a movie that he made. I believe it got a screenplay nomination eventually. The movie was kind of a flop. Bullworth. It's absolutely demented. Bullworth. Yes. Okay. These hints are really right, helping. So, yeah. It is. Right. Number five is the winner. The winner. I can't believe he won for this. Everyone's everyone's favorite movie from 1998. This is a movie that was like, you know, it's it's a British film. It's in that British film zone of the 90s where they, you know, I feel like once a year. Yeah. Weinstein or or some fucking Weinstein pretender would get his hands on some inspirational British film. Yeah. And just cram it down everyone's throats. Be like, you'll never you won't believe how like charming this is. Surround. I remember this is one of the a very iconic. This is like the movie that in your local newspaper would somehow get like three quarters of the page and it would be covered in quotes and stars. And you'd be right. like, I've never heard of this. And this is only playing at one theater in my city. Is this is it the guy from Waking Ned Divine? No, I mean, f- a fair guess, but that would be a more charming thing. Right. That would have been uh, charming. This, this is the same year. I forgot this guy was in this movie. I've seen this movie. I could name like several other actors in it. I He's a famous actor. I forgot he was oh in it. Oh my God. I certainly forgot he won Wait a Golden a Globe. Wait a second. If you get this. Wait a second. Did Michael you get Caine this. win Best yes. Actor in a Comedy for Little Voice? Yes. <laughs> wow. Yes. You're, Which isn't, wow, he's you undoubtedly, he's supporting in that, right? I like was going to say, I wasn't even yeah. thinking about it because he's supporting. Oh, God. Little it's Voice. It's so well. weird. That, like, Travolta seems like kind of a slam dunk winner yeah. there. You know what I mean? Like, what? Mm-hmm. why Why were they like, you know what, let's give it to Kane. It's also, it feels like, were, were he not trying so hard to prove that he was a serious actor, they would have put Carrie in comedy for Truman Show. Yeah. Like, yes, but they Truman campaigned Show, that in drama. Which right, I get, right, yeah. but Truman Show is more of a comedy than, say, The Martian is. 100%. Yeah. Be, you could sell it as a comedy. Who yeah. cares? Yeah. Jesus. I mean, the, the, the primary colors. I mean, these are comedies, yes, but like they're drama comedies. But it's also just funny that Little Truman Voice got. More of a comedy than primary colors. Yeah. Little yeah. Voice got actor, actress, but didn't get film or wasn't even nominated for film. Like Patch Adams made yeah. it to the big category, but this Little Voice that got both of those performances did not even get the nod for, its, for itself did little, as a film. Did Little Voice ultimately get a supporting actress? nomination it for got the Oscars? Brenda Blethyn right. who gives a, I have no beef with Brenda Blethyn but who gives one of the worst performances of the 90s in that film and she <laughs> snuck in because they had just given her the nom for Secrets and Lies which she's good in yeah and this Imagine is kind of a beef with Brenda Blethyn I love Brenda Blethyn I have Wait, no but beef. Bobby scroll my rap down beef with Brenda Blethyn everyone. ended years ago <laughs> 
Scroll down I'm to scrolling. the to the best original song noms. I gotta say, an incredible lineup. Just oh, one yeah, of the finest. I gotta see. You have this. the prayer, rich witch one, reflection, Christina Aguilera, wow. uninvited from City of Angels, which was already brought up in this conversation. When you believe the Whitney yeah. Houston, Ryan Carey, Prince of Egypt, your best original <gasps> song. Yeah. Yeah. Good list, yeah. good list. Yeah, wow. that's the, right. This is also the year that uh, aging rocker comedy, still crazy, was nominated for Best Picture by the Golden Globe. <laughs> still crazy. Um, but like Never the weirdest that. thing, and then we'll be done. We can do the box office game, and then we'll be done. But like, is that the Best Actor nominees? They they carry over Hanks from Private Ryan, McKellen from Gods and Monsters, <clears throat> and Nick Nolte from Affliction. Those <clears throat> three got Globe noms. And then they add in Edward Norton from American History X. Sort of surprising that the Globe snubbed him. Yeah. And then Roberto Benigni is the winner. Why did the Globe snub him? He should be beating out Michael Caine, right? He's he was the Mr. flavor of the Globes. month. Yeah, are you yeah, kidding exactly. me? Here's the box office, Griffin, okay. for December 18th, 1998. Is this her biggest hit? Does this end up being her highest grossing film? I believe this is her biggest hit. Yeah. Do you guys know? I think, let me find I out. I think it did 115 it domestic. That's right. It made $250 million in, a, it must in have been, worldwide. Yeah. I mean, which is another one of those things where people are like, ah, these rom-coms don't travel. It was a huge worldwide yeah, hit. I know. Like, it's not like this movie was ignored elsewhere. Yeah, but a rom-com is um, not going to make a billion dollars. That's the dumb thing. I mean, it's that story um, of Disney wouldn't make a sequel to The Proposal because it didn't make enough for them. And it made $300 million. It made less than Sleepless in Seattle domestic, but more worldwide, just to answer your question. Um, all right. So number one, though, it's You've Got Mail, $18 million. Number two is a movie we just mentioned. It's a, a Christmas animated film. Prince of Egypt. Prince of Egypt. And this is this is December? Yeah. Okay. What do you guys think of Christmas Eve? Prince of Egypt. Even though Prince of Egypt is an Easter movie. It's a Passover movie. But they were I love the Prince of Egypt. Yeah, they were I trying like so hard to compete with Disney and Disney yeah. would have been a summer film, so they wanted to take it's that It's no Rugrats Passover special, but it'll do. Better. Prince of Egypt is, uh, yeah, one of the best, is, is better than so many, so many Disney movies from that time period. It's That's true. Great. And When You a Believe is, is one of, one of the my favorite CDs best <laughs> songs ever. Yeah. It's true. also quietly got the most stacked cast of any animated movie. Oh, yeah. Movie Are you ever. kidding me? Yeah, Incredible mm-hmm. cast. Is Katzenberg mm-hmm. calling in all the favors? Kilmer, yeah. mm-hmm. Ray Fiennes, Michelle Pfeiffer, Sandra Bullock, Jeff Tilbum, Danny movie. Glover, Patrick Stewart, Helen Mirren, Steve Martin, Martin Short. Insane. That's the that's yeah. them. Amazing. Insane. I need to rewatch it. I haven't seen it since the came out theaters. I just they I guess they staged a, a production of it somewhere. I don't know. There's a new cast recording. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's coming to Broadway, but the cast recording's out and I listened to it. It's good. It's on Spotify. I recommend oh. it. Yeah, it's um, great. Number three, Griffin, as mm-hmm. I imagine your favorite cartoon, uh, sorry, animated film of 1998. A Bug's Life. That's right. Correct. Although I need to rewatch Prince of Egypt, but I think it's A Bug's Life. Uh, that movie uh, fucks. <laughs> it, it thrusts its consciousness into me. Number four at the box office, and it's sort of crazy that this movie came out at Christmas. It was not a huge hit compared to... It's it's a it's a sequel in a long, long, long-running franchise. Um and because the last movie had done so well, I think they were kind of emboldened to make this like a big deal release. Scream 2? And it's kind of bad. No, sci-fi franchise. It's Oh, oh, it's um, uh, Star Trek Insurrection? That's right. Yeah. Where they're like, okay, first contact, huge hit. Let's do one where it's like, F. Murray Abraham is a villain and he wants to do more plastic surgery. He's got too many and wrinkles. It's a wrinkle yeah, thriller. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly. And let's throw in like a, a Patrick Stewart, Donna Murphy romantic <laughs> plot. <laughs> like all the decisions they made, you're just like, what were you thinking? This is the worst pivot. Anyway, number five, Griffin, is a Christmas family comedy um, that I feel like is now just best known as a horrifying internet meme. Um, how to describe? It's a bad meme now. No, it stars one Bobby, of your favorite you know? actors. Oh yeah, it stars a lot of my favorite actors. Oh yes, this movie is a terror. It is called very Jack Frost with Michael Keaton. Yes, <laughs> yes. Now, do you know a fact about this movie? Uh, I, I I know that he turns oh, into a snowman. Uh, I know that during in the trailer, which I've seen like four hundred times, even though I've never seen this film. At one point, like some snowballs hit his snow snowman body and he, and he has tits. boobs he and he's like, ah, I don't think so. He goes like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that movie sucks. That movie is a nightmare. That's what they should make people watch at Abu Ghraib. Uh, I do want to say uh, th- that movie, the snowman is largely a practical effect, an animatronic. So they had to right. build it. He's a big, long, weird puppet. Yeah. A long time in advance. They spent a lot of money building this puppet. But they built it off of the likeness of the actor who was supposed to play the title role, who dropped out very late. God, you've told me this and I've forgotten. Who is it? Wait, Look at a what? picture of Jack Frost. I know. That I know. Is, I'm looking at it now. That is pointedly snowman George Clooney. It is meant to be George right. Clooney. Oh, my God. How did George Clooney ever consider being? I know. And I think like even at the time after he finishes filming Batman and Robin, he's like, fuck, I might need to get a little more selective in what I do. Right. He's like, clear the decks. I'm only doing Soderbergh and Cohen movies for a few years. Right. That's one of the best fun facts I've ever heard. Does it not look exactly like Snowman? Oh, my God. Clooney should be paying Keaton like of like wage still like paying him because yes. he got out of this movie yes. like yes. One, monthly a I, monthly salary I think that's how Michael Keaton survived without making a film for the next 10 years I think it was <laughs> right Clooney was just Clooney like, was oh, paying Jesus. him in right. tequila and Nespresso or whatever he sells right. it was Nescafe like or whatever it's George Clooney oh my god yes. it's crazy <laughs> And it's what he's like a rock musician oh my who God. dies and then returns as oh, a snowman. He's worse. He's like a like Bruce Willis style Bruno the Kid white man, a harmonica based blues musician. <laughs> but it's also incredible because Michael Keaton has such a distinctive face that would be so easy to caricature on a snowman. But instead, he's got like the Clooney chin, the little button nose. The it's also just eyes. weird that that one Batman threw it to another Batman. I know. <laughs> and that Keaton was already they threw the they lobbed the snowball at the other one. Yeah. Like also, yeah. what is with the what is it what is with the with the genre of dads having to be dads despite crazy circumstances? Right. Like yes. right. he like wants to be a good Modine dad. One where the, the, the shitty father becomes a dog. Oh. <laughs> like he wants to be a good dad, but he's a snowman. Oh. Like how is he going <laughs> to do it? He wants to be a good dad, but he's God. a dog. I'm forgetting who it. He wants to be a good dad, but he's Santa Claus. Yeah. This is crazy. <laughs> Griffin, I'm seeing that, the, that Jack Frost is 101 minutes long. It's long. That feels like an eternity. <laughs> it's long. It's long. It's really long. It's really like that movie long. should 100% be 73 minutes with credits. It's also weird that like Keaton is already on a downturn at this point. Like he's oh, playing yeah. like the oh, yeah. sixth lead in Jackie Brown. 
It, it, oh, he's it, great. It, hey, wait, no, no disrespect to the Ray Nicolette. Oh, he's amazing universe. in it. But I'm saying he's not like his leading man. Bloom is like sort of it's off over. the rose. At oh, this yeah. point. Multiplicity is the end. So yeah. for them to spend oh. all this money building this snowman and just go like, I don't know, fucking Michael <laughs> Keaton. We just need to film. We cannot swallow the money on this snowman. Um, mm. Last last thing I want to say. Uh, what were we talking about? Jack Frost, uh, Keaton. Uh, uh, fuck, fuck, fuck. I was about to say something that was funny. What? Ray Nicolette. I don't know. I might've lost it. I might've lost it. I'm going to listen to this episode and I'm going to scream at myself. I had one really funny short anecdote to say that I think was adjacent to Jack Frost. And I can't remember it in the episode. Okay. Well, that. well why, why don't you play us out? Um, and maybe while you're doing that, it'll occur to you. And as I'm doing that, remind me of the things we were just talking about. Uh, Bobby and Lindsay, thank you for being on the show. People should listen to who weekly. One of the best Thanks in the for game. Having us. And Thanks. we'll take any excuse to talk about you've got mail. It's the best. Yeah, truly. We have our own. If you're a if you're a patron subscriber to Who Weekly, there's a full DVD commentary track of us just doing more bullshit talking hey, over the film. That's a good selling point. <laughs> just saying. That's a good selling point. Just saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and follow both of you on Twitter to the best thing game. Why not? Yeah. Why this not? was really fun. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having Why us. Not? Yeah. Why not? Yeah. You know, you know, until our president outlaws both of you from tweeting personally. I pray he does every day. Yeah, I love please. to be just sweet release. Shut the whole website down. Sweet, yeah. sweet release. And thank you all for listening. And please remember to rate and review. Subscribe. Thanks to and for Guda for co-producing this show and doing our social media. Uh, thank you to Rachel Jacobs for editing. Help. Lee Montgomery for a theme song. Joe Bowen and Pat Rounds for artwork. Go to blankies.rev.com for some real nerdy shit. Go to patreon.com backslash blank check for our show blank check special features where at this point we are covering the Mission Impossible movies. And as David said, I think right around this time we'll be doing a special episode on uh, hanging up Diane Keaton's one feature film directing credit. Uh, a movie Cheers. one other where my sister just texted me and said, "How is it possible that there is a movie starring Diane Keaton, Meg Ryan, Lisa Kudrow, written by the Efron sisters, directed by Keaton, and I've never heard of it?" And I said, "Because it's that movie. It is the only version of that movie that you would have never heard of." It's a weird one. We'll talk about it. Were you about to say something, Bobby? You had your finger pointed up. Oh, it was. A, I was waiting until the episode was over. Oh, <laughs> is it over? Finger. Uh, tune in next week <laughs> for lucky numbers. Do you want to announce the guest? Uh, we almost certainly know who it is, but I don't want to say it just because in case anything goes wrong. Okay, great. But I think people will be very happy with it. Very on brand. A, a, a favorite guest returning. Uh, and as always, Dave Chappelle is Tom Hanks's best friend. But I was also very tempted to do Starbucks. No. What? What is that? What is that? What are you doing? You're taking all the podcast. That podcast is a garnish. That was I was between those two.